Because of the following special program, Private Benjamin will not be presented this evening. Ah, good evening, everybody. Dallas will not be seen tonight. You're kidding. Well, I never cared about a thing like that. But it will return next Friday. Well, in that case, we better stop wasting time. And now for our feature presentation. motion picture has been rated PG by the Motion Picture Association of America. Parental guidance is suggested. My name is John Jones. I have lived among unfamiliar surroundings for so long. The DEO had been pursuing an alien for months. An innocent one stranded on this planet. The alien they were hunting wasn't a threat. It was a refugee. Sole survivor of a lost world. That alien. Is that you? I am the sole survivor of my planet. The last son of Mars. My name is John Jones. And yes, I am, in fact, from Mars. Your first alien, I presume? That creature and its kind slaughtered the green Martians. So I lost my family. Did you have a wife, John? And a daughter. You miss your family. My daughters were named Kim and Tanya. White Martians came from beneath the planet's surface, bringing fire from the planet's guts. And they burned us all. We fought back. We no war. But not like this. White Martians have been toiling on the ground, building weapons of death. Fire traps. Their technology overwhelmed us. There was no honor in how they fought. They herded us into camps. I swore no matter what, I would protect my family survive but when we got through the gates took the women and children men were forced into labor the others went to the furnace my wife and daughters 
escape. I survived to my great shame. I will hear my family's screams until the day I die. Came to Earth when my civilization was destroyed. I have been John Jones on Earth. I have tried it. I was hunted for 50 years. Will never be tolerated here on Earth. I'm not the only thing from outer space that's come to Gotham. But right now, I'm the only thing that can stop it. Stop what? Invasion. Alien invasion. The end of your world. Like Mars, the red planet, the dead planet. I will defend Earth. My name is Jones. John Jones, also known as the Martian Manhunter. Detective John Jones is what you might call my human alter ego. Ah, no. Nobody told me you was a fragging superhero to boot. Telepathy is one of my many abilities. I am a shapeshifter. Martian manpower? Flight. I change my state or phase or call upon new powers. This is my war, not Earth's. Not anymore. You're not alone in this. I am so sorry for what happened to your planet. Can't imagine what that feels like. But together, we're gonna protect this one. Welcome to the Justice League. Tonight, the Martian Manhunter 60th anniversary special, part two. A celebration of the Alien Atlas, covering 1993 through the present. Hosted by Diablo Frank, featuring new conversations with J.M. DeMatteis, Howard Chaikin, Peter David, Mike McCone, and Carlo Barbieri, as well as archival footage and text-to-audio dramatizations with a who's who of the friends of the sleuth from outer space. In 1997, Matthew Brady wrote for Wizards JLA special, Nobody likes the Martian Manhunter. At least you'd think that was the case. Have you ever personally considered him among the cornerstones of the DC Universe? Did you know his powers rival those of Superman? There's probably a lot you didn't know about John Jones, which is his name in his native Martian tongue. And he's actually pronounced John Jones. He is DC's most underappreciated superhero. Debuting in Detective Comics number 225, 1955, the Martian Manhunter was accidentally plucked from the Martian desert by Professor Erdell when Erdell's machine, designed to merely contact Mars, had teleported Jones to Earth in Instead. As any well-trained scientist unexpectedly confronted by an eight-foot Martian will do, Erdell had a heart attack and died, stranding Jones on Earth for years. During that time, the alien adopted the name John Jones, using a shape-shifting ability to assume human form. As Jones, Jones worked as a detective in a small city, until the appearance of super-powered humans like Superman and Batman convinced him to join their ranks as Earth's new generation of heroes. Jones did eventually get back to Mars, only to find it a burned wasteland. Jones decided to stay with the League of Heroes he had come to know as friends. Although his adventures with his new peers brought him satisfaction and even joy, he has since felt like a true alien, alone and isolated on Earth. As the grandfather of modern superheroes, you'd think the Manhunter would get tons of respect. Hardly. 
He's had specials, miniseries, and still more specials, and he's acted as the leader of earlier versions of the League. But the Martian Manhunter has never been able to land his own ongoing solo series. In the offices of DC Comics, that translates into one thing. By himself, the Martian Manhunter is just not popular. Grant Morrison has an idea why, and it's not pretty. To be honest, I think the real dark reason behind his unpopularity is racism. People just don't like non-white characters, which is sad to say, but his situation seems to be born from the fact Martian Manhunter is an alien and people don't want to deal with him. While critics of Morrison's view may point out that Superman and Hawkman are aliens who are well accepted by the readers of the DC Universe, Morrison stresses that both Superman and Hawkman look very human and very white. Jones is green, tall, and has this really sizable brow that keeps his eyes in the dark. His alienness is so out front that people can't overlook it. He can make himself look human, but everyone knows underneath there's someone from another planet who doesn't look like us, think like us, or behave like us, and is only pretending to be one of us. Along with a lack of popularity, Morrison says that he thinks the character suffers from a lack of trust as well. When I talk with other writers about the JLA, a lot of them don't like the Martian Manhunter, and think that if there was going to be a story where someone betrays the JLA, that he's the guy who would do it. I see him much differently. If someone was to betray the JLA, he's the last person who would do it. According to Morrison, Jones is the glue that holds the idea of the Just League together for generation after generation. He's the keeper of the flame for everything the JLA represents. He's remote from the others, but at the same time, completely dedicated to what they represent. Like honor, truth and justice. He's the last of his tribe, a noble warrior who has seen everything he loved taken from him, but he's dealt with it. Now, his life has meaning via the JLA, which in a way is the closest thing he has to a family. He's with the League for the long haul. Copy from Internal Correspondence Special Number 4, DC Comics 1992. Just League Task Force is a companion series to the other two popular Just League titles and is structured to provide an ever-changing super team. The leader of the task force is the Martian Manhunter, who puts together special teams to handle various world-threatening problems. Former JLA member Gypsy is the only other regular in the book. Just League Task Force features popular Just League heroes in every issue and guest stars hot characters from elsewhere in the DC Universe, like Robin and Lobo. Stories are told in three- and four-issue story arcs, and while some characters occasionally appear in consecutive story arcs, the team makeup always changes. Career politician Hannibal Martin is the task force coordinator, giving the orders as the suit behind the scenes. The title is very accessible to new readers free from ongoing backstories, and gives readers the chance to see people who may never be full-time Justice League members interact with the Justice League. In addition, Justice League Task Force will constantly surprise readers, since different characters appear at any time for their ever-changing missions. JLTF is similar in ways to Mission Impossible, but with a rotating team of superheroes. Sal Valudo, artist, Justice League Task Force. So me, the Martian Manhunter is a man endowed with incredible powers and a lot of wisdom. Being from outer space, he can look at our earthly problems from a universal perspective. Peter David, writer of stuff including Supergirl, Young Justice, Aquaman, DC vs. Marvel, and Justice League Task Force. You were never offered any more JLA work? Nope. Can't believe that. That's not right. I did a two-part JLA task force, which was interesting because it focused on Martian Manhunter. And here's the thing that I remember most about that. I was basically riffing H. Ryder Haggard's famous book, She. And I sent a squad of female heroines, well, females, into an all-woman faraway city. And John Jones became Jane Jones, the Martian Manhunter. Basically, she impersonated a female. And she, essentially, or my equivalent of she, fell madly in love with her and wanted to marry her, which we did. We had them get married. 
because, you know, why not? And what was interesting was we had them kiss. And the Comics Code Authority said, you can't show two females kissing. And we said, we're not. Martian Manhunter is a guy. He's disguised as a female. So it is a male kissing a female. And they said, you can't show it. And we said, why not? They said, because you can't show two females kissing. And we said, you're not listening. It's a guy and a girl kissing. The guy is simply disguised. And they said, oh, okay, but you can't show it because it's two females kissing. And we actually had to have the artist inflate the panel in which they kiss and crop off their heads so that the freaking comics code would approve it. Which, you know, considering what we have in comic books now, just breaks me up. To my mind, when they would not let us show a male kissing a female because it was the image of two females kissing, that, to my mind, was one of the initial death knells of the Commerce Code. And when it officially collapsed years later, I was really perfectly happy with that. In the case of the Valley of the Dolls story from Justice League Task Force, it's interesting because back in the early 90s, when I read the story for the first time, it was just the comedy of the discomfort of John Jones. Yeah. All these years later, there's an element of transphobia to John Jones, but at the end, he resolves it. And so it still plays today. It just plays a little bit differently with a little bit of a different culture context. Yeah, well, yeah, that's pretty much right. I mean, I always try to put subtext into my stories for the readers to garner stuff from it that they might not get on the first reading. John's kind of dealing with his issues with her who must be served. So was that actually intentional at the time, though, or was it something that came up over the course of the decades that followed? No, that's that's I intended that at the time. Thank you. Also, uh, in that Justice League story, you had a great handling of Wonder Woman. Did you ever get approached by for that character, or did you ever consider writing Wonder Woman? Great question. No. <laughs> I'm sensing a theme appearing here. Yeah, really. Copy from the 1994 special, Wizard Press presents Beyond Zero Hour, Justice League Task Force, writer Mark Wade, penciler Sal Valuto, inker Jeff Albright. Following the events of Judgment Day, during which the League's membership was fractured by ill will, the team will be splintered into three groups. The group highlighted in Justice League Task Force will be led by John Jones. John Jones's take is he is the only surviving member of the original Justice League still with the team, says JLTF writer Mark Wade. And he remembers the days when there were five of them, fairly new and fairly young, at what they were doing. So he recruits several young characters and essentially becomes their mentor and is teaching them the ropes of what they are doing. He recruits Gypsy, who has been a member of the team off and on for a while. He recruits the Ray, who is our only real big name in Justice League Task Force. And he recruits Triumph, who is a shakeout of zero-hour continuity that survived the zero-hour ravages. Triumph was actually a member of the team that was to become the Justice League of America, Wade explains. He was there for their very first case, and because of what happened in that case, there was a time blip that removed him from history. He has now been brought back into the time stream, walking around going, hey, I was a charter member, and no one remembers him, including John. So here's a guy who's been yanked completely out of time. He was supposed to have been the first and the best in the current heroic age. That was his destiny. He was a rookie then who, because of this case, was cheated out of a chance to make a name for himself. And now when he comes back, he is still a rookie. But the world is much different. John manages to pull his young team together and train them. John's team has taken up residence on an island off the coast of the Carolinas, says Wade. We pulled this out of my very first Justice League story, which was Justice League Quarterly Number 5, a story in which Professor Ivo, who is a constructor of a mezzo in a big robotic building, has constructed his own island off the coast of the Carolinas and has populated it with robots and storefronts and made it his own little town. It is a perfect training ground for a bunch of young heroes because it is like their own little Hogan's Alley, the FBI's training ground. 
There are all these lifeless robots running around, so there is no threat of danger, but they can really cut loose with their powers in real war situations. But the existence of multiple Justice Leagues can't continue indefinitely. At this point, everybody thinks that they are the Justice League, and that is not a situation that can last forever, Wade concedes. This is something we will have to resolve probably within the next half year or two or shortly thereafter. I think that at that point we may see some more membership shakeups. We haven't really looked that far yet. We are barreling pretty quickly toward Justice League of America number 100, and when we get to that point, we have talked tentatively about doing another major crossover or something. Perhaps a sequel to Judgment Day. Christopher Priest, writer, Justice League Task Force. Like my take on the Black Panther, I see the Martian Manhunter as an enigmatic stranger among us, a man of many faces and many lives. There is no reason why John should be generic or bland or just the green guy standing in back of the JLA eating Oreo cookies. You are the most powerful of them all, but every man has his weakness. Get out of my 1996-1997 must have given John Jones a major case of deja vu for the events of a decade prior. He starts out in an underappreciated, low-selling alternative league book featuring new, young, unpopular heroes and Despero. He debuts in a new medium. The league disbands, but is revived in a well-received miniseries. Then he co-stars in a revelatory, game-changing league relaunch that sells astronomically and spawns a sprawling franchise that includes a Manhunter solo project and merchandising. Following the cancellation of the Justice League line in 1996, which included at that time, Justice League America, Extreme Justice, and Justice League Task Force. The League was relaunched in the miniseries A Midsummer's Nightmare, featuring covers by Kevin McGuire, written by Mark Wade and Fabian Nicieza, with art by Jeff Johnson and Derek Robinson. This was immediately followed by the launch of JLA. In his 2011 book Super Gods, Our World in the Age of the Superhero, Grant Morrison writes, By 1994, the year Jack Kirby died of a heart attack, the book was crawling on all fours with kryptonite around its neck, and in spite of writer Christopher Priest's best efforts, the characters were creepy, pre-forgotten non-hopers with names like Mystech and Bloodwind. And no, it's not just you. He does appear to have based his super identity on some alarming rectal trauma. DC's flagship had simply lost its way as a cataclysmic drop in sales confirmed. The Justice League title had been created to showcase the incredible adventures of the world's greatest superheroes. So, as with Doom Patrol, I did the straightforward thing and went back to first principles. This time I was working with DC's biggest and longest running franchise characters, with faces on lunchboxes and duvet covers. The 1960 Justice League comprised Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Green Lantern, and Flash. A pantheon of pop art divinities. Together with the 1950s stalwart, the green-skinned and noble super-alien John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, this was the roster of champions to which I immediately returned. I had to fight to restore this original lineup and then put them front and center in a superhero title that sought to restore a mythic dimension to the DC Universe. My quite reasonable demands were supported by my editor, Ruben Diaz, a human fusillade of passion and positivity who teamed me with artist Howard Porter and the best inker in comics at the time, John Dell, whose thick, creamy black line could render incredible focal depth and create an illusion of 3D. Porter combined the stocky solidity of the image artist with a snarling gigantism that came from Jack Kirby and was well suited to tales of contemporary gods. Ruben even fought for us to bring Batman into the team against the wishes of Denny O'Neill, now in charge of the Bat Office, and determined to make the Dark Knight's adventures as real and convincing as possible. This meant no fighting aliens or visiting the moon. Diaz kept his creative team safe from the madness and made sure that we could do exactly what we wanted, and JLA number one hit the racks as an instant success story. It turned out to be powerful fun. By taking the characters in their world at face value, I hope to show how the superhero pointed to something great and inevitable in us all. We've always known we'd eventually be called upon to open our shirts and save the day, and the superhero was a crude, hopeful attempt to talk about how we all might feel on that day of great power and great responsibility. 
I asked Howard to open the book with an image that I felt summed up its themes of a vast flying saucer hovering above the White House. Quite independently, the same image appeared on the promo for Roland Emmerich's 1996 alien invasion film Independence Day, advertised coincidentally on the back cover of JLA number one. We launched that same year. Sales went immediately from 20,000 to 120,000, and JLA stayed as DC's top selling book for the rest of the decade. I had a genuine mainstream comic book hit on my hands. Readers responded to the optimism of the book as I suspected they might. We'd seen superheroes sobbing and rending their capes in anguish, and it wasn't really what they did best. It was time to watch them wrestle with angels and tugging worlds on chains. It was time they got their act together and gave us something to live up to. Howard Porter, artist, JLA, The Ray, Underworld Unleashed, and cover artist, Martian Manor Special Number 1. It was a lot, a lot of pressure. It was interesting. It was, we didn't know it was going to uh, turn out the way it did, and uh, very happy it did take off. The uh, <clears throat> editor that was uh, editing The Ray, and I did a crossover before that, a couple of crossovers through that same editor. He, he just uh, it was a, a young editor, and he got the proposal from Grant. I think it, the original one might have been for Teen Titans. Mm. And they said we don't can't would not we didn't want to do a Teen Titans thing. Can you make it into J Justice League? And so Grant did, and this is how I'm remembering it anyway. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, they said you can have the main characters for the first story arc, I think. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it took off like wildfire, and we ended up being able to keep them. So okay, do you ever get into like uh, okay? So you're working in the comic industry. Has there ever been a time? where you had to play the role of Martian Manhunter uh, to the Batman, Superman uh, comic creators out there who maybe had like a little bit of a super ego. Do you ever have to come in with your little Martian Manhunter kind of reasoning and go, hey, guys, we're all on the same team? <laughs> no. No? Gonna teleport you, I'm going to teleport you to the moon? Never happen? All right, fine. I, I have eaten as much Oreos this season. <laughs> <laughs> Martian Manhunter, by the way, my favorite character. He's, he's awesome. He's, really he's like, interesting. Yeah, one of my favorite characters out of the JLA thing. Because, you know, you can all, you can say you love Superman, but he's kind of a dick sometimes. The initial JLA story arc, dubbed New World Order, saw Earth seduced by a new team of alien superheroes dubbed the Hyper Clan. In truth, though, these were prehistoric white Martians mentally manipulating and otherwise subjugating the planet. Having been the sole surviving Martian since 1988, suddenly the alien Atlas had a huge piece of his former lore restored to him. Grant Morrison, writer, JLA, 52, Animal Man, Aztec the Ultimate Man, with Kevin Smith, actor, writer, director. I did JLA before. Yeah, yeah, right up through the 90s, obviously. That was was right up until 2000, I think. That was, um, again, your enthusiasm Mm -hmm. for the characters shines through, but your JLA stuff is transcendent. I loved the JLA when you were writing the JLA because... Your Batman was the the stuff of legends. Here you were writing Batman on on the weekly basis on the reg. Mm-hmm. The the it, sometimes it was just a Susan of Batman. The 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 Martian hanging with a little note on him that says, "I know your secret." Mm-hmm. That whole book, though, again, I I think I said before, if you've never read Rock of Ages, pause this, go read Rock of Ages, and come back. What was it, Howard Porter on the artist? Yeah, the yeah. artist. I love that story so much. I love the entire run that that, that you did on on the JLA. No, that was just great fun at the time because you know my imagination was blooming. <laughs> I was doing psychedelic drugs on a daily basis. <laughs> so things like the Justice League were perfect for just getting out the maddest, craziest ideas. Or oh, the Martian Manhunter. Well, he could he could 
<coughs> change the shape of his brain so that he understands how the Joker feels. Oh my God, or, I love that. Everything was about how would you play with these guys like a formula that all the powers play off one another and how the bad guys' powers play off those powers. But it was also the mythology thing, because, you know, like Doom Patrol was about, here's the world's strangest superheroes. So it was Dada and surrealism mm. and weird European cinema. But then it's suddenly, here's the world's greatest superheroes, here's the Justice League. So that was all about, what, what would you do with those guys? They have to, I, I had to ask them to get those seven characters back together again, because before that, it was just a yeah, bunch it was, of also that's runs, right. you know, and. That's mo- most people probably don't yeah. remember, but there was, oh, or some, a lot of people were reading at that time. Definitely remember there was Justice League International, Justice League, mm-hmm. JLA, JLI, JLE, the Giffen, Dematis run, yeah. which was fantastic. Well, that was great, but that was at its way fag end by that point. Yeah, oh, God, it was, yeah. it was over. So. Spread out. And you had, so you were able to bring the originals back together. And I had to really fight for it because they said, oh, we can't put these characters together. <laughs> Who would buy that? Why? Really? No, seriously, they just hadn't. I mean, it was weird. They just they they were trying so many weird experimental things in the nineties, which is to their credit, you know. There's a right. lot of cool stuff was tried, but I think they just lost focus on. Well, the Justice League is just your big seven superheroes that everybody <laughs> knows and everybody loves, and they're all fighting together, and it's simple. So it actually took a bit of fighting, but once we got into it, and obviously the the fans really responded, they loved it. Mm. But it was all about doing mythology. I just looked at the Gardner Fox stuff and it was all plot. So I just thought, let's just do big plot, 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 bigger and bigger stories, but give each of the characters, like you say, this little moment. The, uh, your run on those books were fantastic. In 1997, Andrew Carden wrote in Wizards JLA special, there's a new Justice League in town. Actually, that's not quite true. They're really an old team, or more specifically, the original team. DC Comics will be presenting Justice League Year One, a 12-issue Mackie series written by Mark Wade and Brian Augustine, with art by Barry Kitson taking a first-year look at DC's premier super team. Besides clearing up unanswered questions, JLA Year One will be very character-driven, spending as much time with the individual heroes out of costume as in costume. In addition to the original Justice Leaguers, expect to see some other Silver Age guest stars like the fighter pilot Black Hawks, the original Doom Patrol, and the Challengers of the Unknown. As for the Martian Manhunter, he's the mystery player of the team. Of John Jones, Mark Waite stated, he's just a little creepy and spooky. He has a sort of imposing nature that Worf does. No one knows what to make of this guy. I don't think they know until a little way in that he can read their minds. And when they find out he can, they get even more spooked. The Maxi series was a top 20 bestseller throughout its run, enriching the character of Martian Manhunter and shedding light on his relationship to the Justice League, as well as planting seeds for the very popular tale, JLA Tower of Babel. We all need heroes in our lives. Sometimes we find them in the most unlikely places. The Manhunt for Mars is appearing in the seemingly endless stream of specials, miniseries, and spin-offs related to the JLA, including Adventures in the DC Universe, a quasi-animated series comic book resembling the Bruce Timm universe of the Batman and Superman animated series, written by Steve Vance and drawn by John Delaney. The Alien Atlas had again been made into several interaction figures. He was on a Monopoly board game, very well represented on merchandise at the WB stores. But there was one dirty little secret lurking beneath all that JLA success. Since the early 1990s, a Justice League of America TV movie had been in development, and it finally came into fruition. The TV team consisted of Ice, the main actress in the movie, Fire, 
Green Lantern Guy Gardner, The Flash, in some sort of Joey Tribbiani mode, The Atom, and John Jones, represented for the first time in the live-action medium by MASH alum David Ogden Steers. However, this television movie was widely panned and was never actually released in the United States. Steers has an excellent voice and gentle eyes that certainly can recall John Jones, but to put it delicately, was not in the best shape to be appearing as though he were bare-chested and covered in grease paint. We want you to join the Justice League. I'm not a superhero. I didn't know what I was doing. You can learn, Tori. I'll teach you, just as I taught all of them. Kyle Rayner, commercial artist and Green Lantern corpsman. Batman gives me the creeps. He could probably wipe up the floor with the JLA. John Jones spooks me more than Batman. Aquaman's surly if he's in a good mood. And Batman's just plain frightening. But at least they're both human. At least I think Batman's human. John's not. And the green skin and that brow aren't what's alien about him. He seems so detached. Cold. Don't get me wrong. I respect John. He's really the next best thing to Superman. And he's been a hero forever. He just gives me the willies. That's all. What do you say to a Martian? Wally West. The Flash. The fastest man alive. He was a hero. He's the jolly green Buddha for crying out loud. Sometimes he spooks me, too. All those years living among us, and no matter how much he blends, he's still an alien. I mean, how can you trust a shape changer? Eel O'Brien, reformed criminal, plastic man. I beg your pardon. You wouldn't have the guts to say that if the Martian Manhunter was here. We need at least one grown-up to look after the newbies, huh? Steve Vance, writer, Adventures in the DC Universe. I have a particular fondness for Martian Manhunter. He's a character that has been around for so long, but has had relatively little exposure. He's underutilized and an intriguing guy, so I'm particularly looking forward to him. Robert Green Booger, writer-slash-historian. Finally, in the 1980s, John Jones's role in the DC Universe was at last clearly defined. The 1987 launch of Justice League, under writers J.M.D. Mattis and Keith Giffen, saw him become the heart and soul of the team. It's a role he is continuing to play, both in JLA, and in the pages of the monthly Martian Manhunter. Even today, there are few heroes with more complex histories or personalities than the Manhunter from Mars. Daryl Banks, artist, Green Lantern, JLA Spectre. At one point I'd go, oh, I get to draw the Justice League and this is so daunting, I've got to focus. But really, it was more like, I can handle this. But the one I had the most fun with hand down was Martian Manhunter. I just loved drawing that guy. Man, I'd consider doing a fill-in issue of that book. He's just a great character. I'd like to see him appear again in Green Lantern, even if it's just him in the team-up. The Green Team, right? The Sleuth from Outer Space starred in the first JLA annual and co-starred in the Zoriel miniseries Paradise Lost, both drawn by Ariel Olivetti, before finally getting his own ongoing series for the first time in over 40 years. The book had a unique publishing pattern where the debut issue was numbered zero, followed by a one million issue, then the first ever Marsh Manor annual, and finally Marsh Manor number one. The new series repaired the Grimjack Inspector creative team of John Ostrander and Tom Mandrake. 
Matthew Saunders wrote about the launch in the second Wizard Magazine JLA special. While issue number one million crossed over with DC's JLA-inspired one million event, showcasing John's possible future, issue number zero allowed the new creative team to place their stamp on his origin. As revealed in the 1988 Martian Manhunter miniseries, John's the lone survivor of a plague that killed the entire green Martian race, including his wife and daughter. In Ostrainer and Mandrake's updated version, the duo revealed that the plague was a genocidal virus created by an insane Martian named Ma Alifa Ak, Malefic for short, whom John left for dead following his people's demise. The article discussed Martian Manhunter's assumption of a variety of secret identities throughout the globe and is patrolling the southern hemisphere. Graham Morris even noted, he's more well-known in Australia, New Zealand, and Latin America than Superman is. And lest Sean's superheroic side be forgotten, the duo has designed a number of new villains, creating what they hope will become the Manhunter's Rose Gallery. To that end, issue number one introduced the Headmaster, a crazed scientist who uses mechanical constructs to sever people's heads and take over their bodies. While issue number two featured John's first encounter with the giant Antares robot, first hinted at in issue number one million. Number three features a confrontation with Bette Noir, a formidable telepath capable of altering John's perception of reality. The single issue stories all paved the way for the series' first major story arc and the return of Malefic, who unbeknownst to John isn't dead after all. Traveling to Earth, Malefic begins impersonating John, hoping to discredit the Manhunter before killing him. The storyline, which culminates around issue number eight or nine, will also reintroduce fans to Jim, son of Saturn, who was last seen in the JLA Rock of Ages story as an unwilling member of Lex Luthor's Injustice Gang. Editor Peter Tomasi noted, he's at Zanzor, John's Fortress of Solitude, recovering from that. The Martian Manhunter ongoing series ran for three years and picked up a second annual. It was revealed that the Saturnians from the Jim, son of Saturn miniseries were actually clones of the green and white Martians, created initially as slave labor, and John Jones had adventures with that hero. There was a series of flashbacks referred to as Revelations that showed John meeting various heroes in the early days of the modern era of the DC Universe, and a strong connection was built between the Martian Marvel and the villains of Apocalypse, who influenced Malefic's genocidal actions, with the assassin Kanto, and especially the Lord of Apocalypse, Darkseid, having a massive negative impact on John Jones's life. John Ostrander, writer. Legends, Suicide Squad, Martian Manhunter, JLA Incarnations. Tom Mandrick and I were looking for something to do together as our run on the Spectre ended. And something that would, that would play to his strengths and my strengths as well. And Martian Manhunter came up. And the reason Martian Manhunter attracted, was attractive was because of some of the things he said. He was a B character and wasn't really developed. He was sort of this green version of Superman. He had many of the same powers. So we want to get into how is he different? What makes him different? With the Spectre, we had a sort of single storyline that we followed all the way through. With Martian Manhunters, uh, we were doing something different. We tried to weave a tapestry where you would understand his society, uh, what his attitudes were, his values, and they all came out of his society. Superman came to Earth as a baby, as a, you know, and he was raised here on Earth. And while he's a uh, native of Krypton, he his val his values are those of Kansas. You know, you know, he was raised there, but Martin, but John Jones was raised on Mars. He came to Earth as a fully formed adult, and in fact, one who had gone through tragedy. That right there, that there's a big difference. Was it prematurely canceled? I don't know exactly the reason. Uh, I suspect, you know, there's something in terms of numbers. Do we not appeal to enough people, even through the JLA connection? Um, I don't know. I don't know. You know uh, generally, though, when something like that happens, they see a downward slump in numbers, and they don't think you're going to bring it back up. So um, the problem is once numbers start dropping, you get the retailers are not ordering it as much. as the retailers aren't ordering, then you have no chance of, of getting it out to the public. Do you file that those ideas away for future use, or is it... 
Uh, they get filed away, but I don't think I'm ever going to use them. I think where we were a success was that we added layers to the Martian Manhunter and uh, suggested things about him and his past and who he was that could be explored more fully. I don't know whether or not they really have since then. I don't know whether uh, those who have come on since then are interested in doing that. Um, but again, that's their choice. That's editorial choice. J.M. Dematis. Dematis. J.M. Dematis. Dematis. J.M. Dematis. Dematis. J.M. Dematis. John Ostrander named John Jones's wife and daughter, Maria and Kim. Do you like the names? What were the names that he used? I don't know. Uh, Maria and Kim with a bunch of apostrophes and variant spellings. It's fine with me. I have a lot of respect for John Ostrander. If it was good enough for him, it's good enough for me. Did you ever get to read his tribute issue with Doug Monkey and Marshman Hunter when they revisited the JLI? No, I never did. I never did. I'd recommend it. It's Marshman Hunter on a Choco uh, Oreo rampage, and they do their best to channel the spirit of your run. Oh, you know what? That sounds familiar, so I think I might have. I might have. Yeah, yeah. It's always nice when people go back and they connect with what we did, and some guys can pull it off and some guys can't, you know, but from what I recall, that story very much did. In the late 90s and early 2000s, Marshmander was synonymous with the JLA, and the JLA were ubiquitous in comics. Not only was John Jones appearing in several comics a month as part of the team, but he occasionally received starring roles in miniseries like Scary Monsters or arcs in JLA Classified. He received a major arc in JLA under Joe Kelly and Doug Monkey, where he started a relationship with the villainous Scorch, who helped to remove his fear of fire, but triggered a primordial entity within John Jones called Furnace. They nearly destroyed the JLA and the Earth itself before being reined in. John Jones was also a favorite of the painter Alex Ross, who used him in numerous projects, most visibly in the Justice 12-issue Maxi series. John Jones was also barely in the similar work Kingdom Come, where based on a suggestion by Kurt Busiek, the hero was presented as having a shattered psyche after trying to connect with the whole of humanity all at once through his telepathy. Alex Ross co-plotted a project with scripter Mark Wade. It was very much a co-plotting process. I mean, it was, I don't want to ever give the illusion that it was all out of my brain and Alex is just the guy who held the paintbrush. I've always been clear about that, that it was a collaborative process and Alex came to the table with a lot of really good ideas and some very clear visions of these characters and luckily we were on the same wavelength on 99% of those characters. Martian Manhunter was the only one we disagreed on, but that's okay. We're the only two adults in history who got into a screaming match over who Martian Manhunter is. Um, but it all resolved. John Jones also joined the team in its many intercompany crossovers. He got to fight Marvel's The Thing, Thor, the JLA team up with the Avengers, the Martian Marvel met Witchblade, the Looney Tunes was decapitated by a predator. John Jones also appeared in many Elseworlds and imaginary stories, most notably Darwin Cook's award-winning DC The New Frontier in 2004 which told the origin stories of the Justice League members as though they actually lived in the 1950s. Darwin Cook, writer-artist, DC Comics, The New Frontier. Now, at some point after Catwoman, you ended up getting the New Frontier miniseries, which is essentially something that you did yourself. What research was required for that? Because that's got some pretty intensive stuff, and it's very much about continuity and then being able to find a continuity within that. Well, it was a lot of research, to be quite honest. And uh, frankly, it, Catwoman was like something done in between. Uh, because when I finished Batman Ego, Chirello phoned me and said, do you want to do another book? And I said, yeah, I, I would love to. And he said, well, uh, at that time, uh, Morrison was doing Justice League. Super hot. So they said, we were thinking maybe you could do a Justice League book. And I'm like, oh, 
<laughs> you know, because again, I, I really didn't have that affinity for the superheroes as much as I did certain other characters. And I came up with the outline for what became New Frontier, which was looking at them at the moment before they become the Justice League. Uh, there's a, a writer named uh, James Elroy, and I just read a novel of his called The Cold 6000, and it's a, it's a fictional novel that takes place against the backdrop of actual history. And I thought, wow, what a fascinating idea. And I started researching, you know, geez, you know, when did The Flash debut? When did Green Lantern start? What was the first issue of Justice League? What year was that? And I looked at the history that surrounded that. And I went, wow, you know, if you take... Like, DC back then, those comics were, you know... The Silver Age DC stuff is really stiff. It's really PC, it's really bland, it's incredibly white. Everybody's, everybody's right, everybody's happy. And I thought, wow, what if you took all that and laid it across the actual history? And then I started to think, what if these characters actually appeared the month their first issue appeared? And I started looking at what was going on in history the month, say, Flash first appeared in Showcase. And it, it became really fascinating how the linkage was all there. And I just started tying it together. There was so much resistance to the project within the office that it, it was over three years before we actually got a green light to go ahead with it. But I couldn't put it down. You know, finally we got to go ahead. And by then I was very well prepared because I'd, I'd been obsessed with it for several years. I found uh, when I started looking at the history of the characters and all that continuity and nonsense, it, it, it was impenetrable. So I decided then, and I've, I've sort of kept to this all through my career, I have complete and utter respect for the men who created the characters, the continuity they laid down in the first three or four issues. I strictly adhere to that. Everything else doesn't matter. So I had to respect what the original creators had done and what their intention was, and then build from there. Do you think that people really responded to the work because there's something missing in the current modern style of comics? There's something pure about the Silver Age, Dawn of the Silver Age era? I don't know if it's missing, but my, my opinion is it is. Was there anything in the movie that, that you adapted, that you, like there was something in the book that you thought you could have done better that you, that you changed in the movie, or is it, is it straight? I, I believe there are a lot of little pieces of the film that, that sort of uh, handle certain aspects of the book in a really, say, more succinct and, and, and compressed dramatic fashion that I thought was really kind of good. I thought uh, the way Stan constructed the uh, first scene with Martian Manhunter was really well done. It sort of said everything about the character all in one, one little vignette. Now, of, of all the characters you have to work with, which one do you like the best? When I did New Frontier, I had no idea that the Martian Manhunter would be such an integral part of my story. The character just... Yes. And a character I'd never cared for or knew very little about suddenly became one of the two most important characters in the book to me. Howard Chaikin. You haven't written John Jones in the quote-unquote canon DC very often, but you're one of the best guys about including him in your Elseworlds, your imaginary stories, Son of Superman, Superman Distant Fires. I think he was in Secret Society of Superheroes as well. Is there a reason why he keeps creeping into your books besides just, you know, the, the familiarity from youth? No, I, I, I think one of the things about the DC universe is that there are characters that are fun to service. And I, I said earlier to somebody that I felt that my writing in television had, had directly affected in a very positive way the way I write comics. And to a great extent, one of the things about that is when you're working on a show that's got a multiple cast, 
your, your, one of your jobs is to service your, your cast. The realm of possibility that's available to you in the DC comic universe is such that you can achieve certain goals by servicing certain characters and using them for service and both, and both answering their, their value. So, you know, I think these are, there are certain iconic characters that belong in everything. you got to have them. You know, that, that, that's really as simple as that. No more complex than that. Well, I mean, hell, you call John Jones iconic. That's more than most people would give him. But I think he is iconic to a certain generation. It's interesting because you have this lag, because the, the kids of the 50s and 60s who grew up with him as a member of the Justice League, as one of the Magnificent Seven, hold him dear to them. And then kids of my generation, the Bronze Age, or the late Bronze Age kids who saw him when he came back to the Justice League and was part of Justice League International, we hold him dear. And also the kids who grew up on the cartoons of the early 2000s. But there's this gap period from like the late 60s and 70s where those creators just seem to not have much interest in the character. I think it's more a nostalgic sense memory. There's, a, there's an element of significance attached to the fact that, you may not remember this, but there was that abortive Justice League pilot many years ago. Have you ever seen it? Right. Oh, yeah, David Ogden Steers, right? That's what I'm saying. Think about that. David Ogden Steers playing, playing John Jones, Master of Man Under Mars. That's kind of nutty. He had a good voice, though. Yeah, well, he has a great voice. He has a, the perfect radio voice, you know? I think, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, some, you know, somebody, somebody out there of my generation, before they die... Is going to bring back Congorilla. Oh, it's already happened. James Robinson, in fact. See, and James is the guy, always, you know, because he's, he's the guy who's deeply steeped in that background tradition. And that's a perfect idea. It really is. I mean, um, I know Stuart Shrek over at DC is obsessed with Airwave, you know, so sooner or later it's going to pop back up. You know it. All that stuff. Z- Zatara, Zatanna, you know, you say tomato and I say tomato. It's, it's, it's really, you know, you go, you go dig into the canon. And at Marvel, it's very much the same way, same, same circumstance in a different way. I mean, Marvel, as I've said more than once, is, is the, the archetype of using everything of the pig, including the squeal. And I respect that deeply. I mean, they're, they're going to they're gonna find a way to exploit and, and maximize use of anything they own. And I think that's exactly the way to work and function. I really do. Speaking of James Robinson, we talked yesterday about how he had done the Golden Age miniseries with Paul Smith. That had gone over well. You pretty much volunteered, hey, if you do Silver Age, I want to do it. And you told me a little bit about having developed that property with him. Would, you, would we willing to discuss that a little bit? It was a really great concept. It just, it, it, the timing out of the situation seemed to just evolve. And by the time it, it, it all got together, it sort, of, it sort of melted away. And then, of course, Darwin Cook has really done it with New Frontier. I think Darwin loves the material more than I do. And I think more than James does, in a way that's more identifiable as love, as opposed to appreciation and, and exploration. I mean, I love New Frontier. I thought it was just bitching. My take on the Silver Age, and I think James as well, would have been much darker than in a you know, and just it, it looked at a, at a world that was much less optimistic. I'd have to agree with the, the Golden Age books were a little darker, a little more weird psycho stuff going on in them because people were still figuring out the medium. I, I loved it. I mean, I look. I wrote the intro to the trade paperback. You know. Oh yeah, no, and I think that the Golden Age characters work well when you dig them up and do more sophisticated stuff with them. With the Golden Age, it's almost like an eternal childhood. You kind of want to preserve the, the innocence of those characters. No. <laughs> well, not you, but some other guy. I, I, I think you're the guy who did Twilight, for God's sake. Well, and again, um, and you know, I, I work in a field in which you really do have 50-year-old men reading the same thing they read when they were 15, and I'm one of those guys. You know, I mean, I. Um, I mean, I, I grew up reading those, like, like I say, all those really short science fiction books. You know, The Atomic Nights, uh, Space Museum, all that stuff. Space Cabby, Star Hawkins, love that work. And, and having the opportunity to do that, you know, these characters were more abundant at that point. And, and there was an opportunity to reinvent. Look, 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 I mean, look, Alan sets the pace with that. I mean, let's not forget that Watchmen was originally based on the Charlton characters, which had been acquired by DC. They decided that they didn't want to throw those characters away in, in, that, in that particular direction. 
so he invented new ones. And Twilight really does the same thing with those characters. And, and, and typically, there's, there's always buyer's remorse at these companies when this sort of stuff happens. And, 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 and then you give it a year or two and it can be ignored. So, you know, oh, it's just another universe. Another See, this thing, though, I, I, the audience is different now. You're not writing for the 12-year-old boys anymore. You're really writing for the guys who've been growing up with this stuff for decades. You're writing for a lot more of adults. And you have to give adults something adult to put, get their, to see but, their teeth but, into. But among those, those 40 to 50-year-old men, there are juvenileists. There are people who like a, a darker, edgier, ta- edgier take on stuff that that, that, that that goes back to their childhood. And there are people who feel they've outgrown this material and, and, and are looking in different directions. So it's a much more splintered, shattered audience. And it's difficult to satisfy the entire audience with everything. And you're also dealing with an audience that has a kind of an odd, dichotomous relationship with the concept that is it, is it popular because it's good or is it good because it's popular? So you didn't get to do The Silver Age. Was there anything that you wanted to do with John Jones in that context that you didn't get the chance to do or did it really not get that far? Not really. Not, no, I mean, it's... Because the, the thing about, about both Golden Age and what Silver Age might have been is you're dealing with an ensemble. And I think the ensemble effect, the nature of that, is what it's about. That's really where, it, where it's at for me. If the 2000s were shaping up to be a banner decade for John Jones in comics, they were even better in multimedia. He finally made his proper animation debut in the Cartoon Network television series Justice League, which after being rebranded Justice League Unlimited, ran from 2001 through 2006. The Martian Manhunter's post-crisis backstory was reflected in the three-part pilot episode of the series Secret Origins, and he continued to be a prominent member of the team in its initial incarnation, alongside Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, The Wally West Flash, John Stewart Green Lantern, and Hawkgirl. John Jones was played by noted character actor Carl Lumley, who would have been familiar to superhero fans from his short-lived television series Mantis. What I remember of that first audition was uh, it was fairly emotional. That was the, the, the placement that I wanted for him. And I think Andrea directed me to have that sense, but also to keep the idea of someone who had been by himself so he doesn't quite know how to express anything and he is martian so it's a different kind of expression i remember at one point um he had to sing the equivalent of the martian christmas song which we improvised sort of on the spot i learned that uh, john jones had been originally drawn and then removed from uh, the cartoon as it moved forward um so when i was cast i thought about um my own family and my own my own experience as being a child of immigrants coming to a place where you were starting anew, trying to gain hold and uh, understand where you were, literally an alien in a foreign country. There's no other Martians left, and he can't go back to Mars to get a sense of himself in the same way that uh, we could go back to Jamaica. So it was, um, that was the essence of it, and also someone who was alone and really didn't have a chance to talk to other people, so his voice was something that he had to use to comfort himself, but he couldn't be full-voiced. So that was why there's a, a bit of wistfulness, a bit of sadness, and uh, almost an echoic quality, because his voice, his soul is bouncing around off his interior, really not anyone to coordinate with. So he found a family, and didn't know much about family and had to learn and grow. Carlo Barbieri, comic book artist, Justice League Unlimited, and Batman the Brave and the Bold. How many years did you work on the Justice League animated comic book, the adaptation? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I did that in DC about uh, 
seven years ago or something like that. How many years did you work on it? Like three years, yeah. Did you get to work with any of the people involved in the animated show, or they basically leave you to your own devices? It's a separate thing. They, uh, well, the, the writers, they did wrote some issues, and uh, it was fun to work with them. Did you ever watch the animated series yourself? Oh, yeah, a lot. I actually got a lot of reference from there. I tried to be as accurate to the cartoon as I could be. I bought all the DVDs and all, so I have it all. <laughs> I liked how you were able to adapt the Bruce Tim style. You had that basic look, but you gave it your own feel, your own kind of curves. It was like a little a nice smooth line and everything. J.M. DeMatteis. You wrote some of the best episodes of Justice League and Batman the Brave and the Bold, and some of them have featured Despero and the Martian Manhunter. Did you have any challenges in adapting them to the new medium? No, you know, not really. You go in with a very different headset. You know, writing animation, writing television is not the same as writing comics. For one thing, it's a much more collaborative medium. If you're hired as a freelancer in TV, you know, you've got a producer, you've got a story editor, you've got guys that have worked out the map of the show, and you're really hired to execute their vision for the show and then ideally bring as much of yourself and your vision to the table. But I, you know, it's not about me going, oh, I'm going to write Justice League Unlimited. Here's where the show is going now. No, because they have that in hand, you know. So I have, in comics, there's a lot of freedom. Even on, you know, mainstream iconic characters, I've had so much freedom with Spider-Man, with Justice League, with all these characters, to do them exactly the way I want them. With Justice League, with, with the animation, you're doing the show the way the producers want to do the show. So I take off my personal vision hat, and I put on my collaboration hat, and then it's, I have a great time, because these guys are really smart and really creative and really talented and between all of us we work things out and I loved working on those shows I mean the first thing on Justice League that they handed me was the Alan Moore story yeah, yeah I, I got to caught that anecdote yesterday that was great and you said yeah, that's the only time you've ever had a first draft accepted for animation I think that was one of the few times yeah where and but that one I thought okay you know I'd written for TV before I just turned in the first draft where are the notes and like, I don't know, a week and a half went by and I thought, oh my God, I must have totally screwed this up. They're going to fire me, have someone else rewrite it. And then I called up my buddy Stan Berkowitz who worked on the show and he said, no, no, you got it right. Don't worry about it. That's why there's no second draft. We don't need a second draft. And then I did the second, the next episode after thinking, oh, I'll just do a first draft. And they were like, here's all the notes. Now let's do the second draft, you know? So, but I, I loved working on that show. Brave and the Bold may be my favorite out of all of them because, well, A, Every week it was different characters. Not just every week, but within the same show, because you had the teaser, which was like a mini-episode, and then you had the main story. And the other thing I loved about that show was because it, it skewed younger, but it skewed younger in a way that I've had so many guys come up to me and say, I watched that show with my six-year-old son and some 40-year-old and said, and we both enjoyed it, you know. And there's not a lot of things where you get a you know a father and his and his six year old son both loving the show and both enjoying it. I really had a great time, and it was a wide variety of stories for that show. And despite the fact that it was very kid friendly, it seemed they kept throwing me these really dark stories, like the Doom Patrol story where they all die in the end, or the Red Tornado story where he has a son, which is one of my favorites that I did for them. Who basically it ends with a mercy killing, you know. It's like he has to turn his son off and kill him because he, he can't fix him and he's out of control. It was a really sad story, you know. I've had a lot of fun working in animation. I just had a Batman animated movie, Batman vs. Robin, that just came out last month on DVD. 
And so the animation work that I've done over the past 10 to 12 years has been a really, a real highlight of my career. I've really enjoyed it. Stan Berkowitz, story editor, Justice League, writer, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, Static Shock, with Bruce Tim, character designer, animator, writer, producer, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited. We have John Jones being essentially a, a watch sergeant. Uh, a desk sergeant at a police station. So he's the one who coordinates all the different um, uh, missions of the Justice League. We felt that we kind of needed somebody to be up on the watchtower keeping an eye on things and assigning missions and, you know, making sure that, uh, you know, that fire in Indochina gets put out at the same time that somebody's there to, you know, take care of that, that you know, train, train wreck in France. Theoretically, John has some plan in mind when he teams up this one with that one and their powers will complement each other, although often he does it for psychological purposes so that one will teach another a lesson. The Justice League TV show spun John Jones off for a two-episode appearance in the television series Static Shock and also set up the character to finally break into video games after being left out of the 90s Justice League task force. He debuted in 2002's Justice League, Injustice for All, and Justice League Chronicles, and then turned up again in 2006's Justice League Heroes and Justice League Heroes The Flash. In 2011, he took part in DC Universe Online, 2012's Lego Batman 2 DC Superheroes, and 2013's Injustice Gods Among Us featured him as a very popular downloadable character. Assuming the readings are accurate, what's the missile aimed at? Mars. The Tharsis Ridge. The missiles were modified to allow for interplanetary flight. Brainiacs trying to free the White Martians. They destroyed nearly all life on my home planet before I was able to imprison them in suspended animation. If Brainiac's plan succeeds, Earth will be their next target. I won't allow those monsters to destroy another world I love. I'm right with you, Jean. Let's go. An avalanche of merchandise and comic books outlived the Just League Unlimited cartoon series, but the animated world, having had a taste of Jean Jones, wanted more. Full Metal Jacket's Dorian Harewood voiced the character in The Batman in 2007. Telekinesis. Neat party trick. How heavy can the object be? I could lift you and your best friend. That is, if you have one. Miguel Ferrer of Twin Peaks fame voiced John Jones in the animated adaptation of Justice League The New Frontier in 2008. I thought I could make a life for myself here among you humans. I didn't think I had a choice. But there is one now. There's just too much hatred here, too much ignorance, too much mindless conformity. I'm leaving. In 2010, Graphic Audio produced a radio drama featuring John Jones that adapted the 2006 Alan Davis book, DC Universe, Last Sons. Whoever you are, Zemtex, note also that Lobo struck the first blow. Whatever happens to him now is his own responsibility. Jonathan Adams voiced the character for the 2010 original animated movie, Justice League, Christ on Two Earths. I apologize for reading your mind before. It is considered extremely impolite to do so without permission. While Carl Lumley returned for Just League Doom, both of these featured offered significant roles for the sleuth from outer space. One spotlighting his romance with an alternate dimension's altruistic Rose Wilson, and the other featuring a conflict with his evil twin brother, Malafa Ak. Kevin Michael Richardson played John Jones throughout the run of Young Justice. All the more reason both worlds must stand together. This satellite represents a new spirit of cooperation between sister planets. 
the beginning of an alliance that can protect us all. Nicholas Guest led the Justice League International in Batman the Brave and the Bold. Reminds me of the time I infiltrated the Legion of Doom disguised as a deodorant bar. The look on Luthor's... John, the shield! Oh, right. While Cam Clark was the alien atlas for Lego Batman, the movie, DC Superheroes Unite. Calling all Justice Leaguers. Succeeded by D. Bradley Baker on Lego DC Comics Superheroes Justice League Attack of the Legion of Doom. I am John Jones of the planet you call Mars. Thank you for freeing me. Those who held me captive should be punished. If you think the Martian Marvel is getting a lot of Lego action, keep in mind that in 2014 he received an exclusive New 52 Lego minifigure and was featured in a design more reminiscent of Brightest Day for a Brainiac attack set. And that's forgetting the fact that the Martian Manhunter has finally entered the public consciousness. He appears in a variety of parody animated and live action skits from name brand shows such as Robot Chicken and Mad. Fire's his one weakness. Yeah, fire's everyone's weakness. It's f***ing fire. In 2006, John Jones made his live-action television debut in the United States of America as played by the actor Phil Morse, beginning on the sixth season of the WB-slash-CW television series Smallville, which chronicled the adventures of a young Clark Kent in his hometown. John Jones, still a Martian, worked as a bounty hunter tracking alien fugitives and was also a contemporary of Jor-El, who vowed to protect his son Kal-El on the planet Earth. John Jones appeared numerous times on the show, often saving Kal-El's life and trying to train him into becoming a superhero. Yeah, it was a traditional audition. You know, the character was John Jones, and I knew the character because I'm very familiar with the comics, as I've stated many, many times in the past. I have grown up with them, and I was excited. You know, I I know the show Smallville, or knew the show Smallville then, and so I went to the interview with a lot of history. I dressed, you know, in the way that I felt John would dress, and wore the shoes that I felt he would wear, and and, uh, went in, and I felt I did a great job. It was just the casting director, a video camera, and myself. And then they sent it off to Canada, I guess, and sent it to the guys at Warner Brothers. And I didn't hear for a long time, maybe four weeks later, literally, maybe a month later. Uh, I had to go back in and, and audition for us and the couple of the producers who came down from Canada. So I went in the room, and I, I felt like I, I even raised it a little bit more. I felt like I really understood what was going on. They gave me what they were thinking that they wanted him to be like. And I thought I nailed it. You know, I just thought I hit it out of the park, but then I didn't hear another three weeks. And I was like, well, they said it was an important character, and I know John Jones has got to be, I mean, I called my manager, did anybody get it? No, they hadn't. I was like, shoot, um, okay, and I forgot about it. As soon as I forgot about it, I got it. But the audition itself was really a combination of what I know about that character. You know, I'd done even contemporary Justice League stuff. I was Vandal Savage, you know, had scenes with Carl Lumley as Vandal Savage and mm-hmm. him, he as John Jones. I had just done The New Frontier as King Faraday prior to getting John Jones on screen. So here I am playing these scenes as King Faraday opposite the Martian Manhunter and then, you know, Two months later, six weeks later, I'm playing him. So it was cool. I mean, it was hand-in-glove stuff. I felt like I was not destined for it, but the proper pieces were in place to, to get the role. Usually it's very quick. I find it to be like the end of the day, the end of the week, Friday end of business day, end of the business week is usually when you find out about almost any part, and but especially of kind of a bigger role. But I guess, you know, it was such a deep role for the show that they needed to really see a lot of people and hear they had the right guy. I believe that this character exists in the world and has this part to play in this young man's life. I think the fans see that and they appreciate that. The same way that they appreciated John Schneider and, and Ed O'Toole on another level, stabilizing parental, mature, mentoring 
presence in his life. John now is almost the only presence like that in his life. Everybody else is much more youthful, and, and he's definitely more of an outsider then. As he becomes more of that kind of uh, social animal, he starts to realize the big difference in his makeup. John is the kind of person that says, hey, you're not alone. Somebody out here who understands exactly being an alien on the planet. Well, before it came on, they were like, well, what do you look like? Are you green with a, with a pre-existing or you know, a right. frontal occipital lobe? I'm like, no. I don't look like the dude. Don't look like the dude in the comics. I look like an intergalactic shaft. That's exactly there it what is. They're like, ooh, that's cool. And I think in using John Jones in a real-world setting with real-world devices and clothing and so forth, it allows you to take the ride. The success John Jones was finding in outside media was now reflected back in his original home of comic books. Infinite Crisis was a maxi-series that marked the 20th anniversary of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And if Crisis was Martian Manhunter's debutante ball, Infinite Crisis was more like his retirement party. In the lead-up to the event, Martian Manhunter was sucker-punched by an evil alternate universe version of Superboy and held captive throughout the series. When he was released, he all but disappeared from the DC Universe for a canonical year. This was during a period in which the Justice League was placed on hiatus, and when it reformed, John Jones was no longer a member, and to date he has yet to become a core member of the Justice League again in ongoing adventures. He got into a nasty fight with Black Adam, who beat him so bad that he turned into a conehead from Saturday Night Live. He was given a dramatic redesign by the artist Jose Ladron and appeared in a 2006 eponymous miniseries by A.J. Lieberman and Al Barrio Nuevo that was not exactly a fan favorite. You know, even when I was there, that was the hardest person to write for, and I had very little. Martian Manhunter came very close because, for all intents and purposes, that is Superman, yeah. different guys, and I think my, uh, my trade was the first time, I don't know in how many years she was ever given his solo, uh, but that's hard. I mean, Superman to me was almost an impossibility because what are you? What am I going to write that is going to be dramatic? Meanwhile, Jeff Johns and Tony Daniel had debuted a new character in their Teen Titans series, Miss Martian, who appeared to be a green-skinned Martian and Supergirl-esque sweetheart, which was half true. She was actually a white Martian, but much more good-natured than most of the ones that John Jones had encountered. The Martian Manhunter never had much of a relationship with Miss Martian in the comic books, but as his star was in decline, hers began to rise, and she was eventually featured in the cartoon series Young Justice, developing a fan base all her own. She was voiced by Danica McKellar. Hello, Megan! It's no different on Mars. The white Martian minority are treated as second-class citizens by the green majority. Of course, I'm green, but that doesn't make it right. I'm honored to be included. Jake Black wrote, in the 2008 Eagle Moss Magazine publication, DC Comics Superhero Collection 18, Martian Manhunter. When it was revealed that a U.S. government agency had been holding some white Martians captive for decades, having acquired them from a renegade Martian, Jean freed them and discovered something shocking. The experimentation they were being subjected to was leading towards a method of killing him. Subsequent investigations unmasked a female green Martian with bigoted attitudes to white Martians and a hatred for Jean, whom she blamed for not stopping Ronmir's curse. Following this experience, Jones's feelings toward humanity changed. He adopted a harder, more alien appearance and joined Batman's new Outsiders team. Shortly after, he took on the appearance of the villain Blockbuster to infiltrate the prison planet known as Salvation Run. When his identity was revealed, he was captured and tortured by inmates before a major new villain known as Libra summoned Jean via a boom tube. Surrounded by a host of villains, a seriously injured John Jones fought back valiantly, but ultimately in vain. Libra brutally killed the weakened Jean by driving a flaming staff through him. He arrived on Earth a stranger in a strange land, but was mourned by all his adopted planet's heroes in death. 
recognized as one of the greatest and noblest among them, Grant Morrison. Marshall Manland was killed in final crisis and then was immediately brought back to life after final crisis. And it kind of is the condition of superheroes. The Manhunter's death was one of the shortest lived in comic book history. The very next year he appeared in the event series Blackest Night as a zombified version of himself, a Black Lantern as it were. At the end of the series, he and several other deceased heroes were resurrected and he was given a altered costume to take part in the year-long anthologistic ensemble maxi-series Brightest Day. That book appeared to set up a new status quo for the character as well as a new villainess in DK Draz, a serial killer who who had barked Martian Manhunter as her means to procreate to make some new little baby Martians. John Jones told her he was not interested in the firmest manner possible, throwing her into the sun. Apparently along the way, though, John Jones dropped his entire continuity into the same sun. DC Comics relaunched their entire line with a new continuity, dubbed the New 52, beginning with a relaunch Justice League number 1. In this new history, John Jones was no longer a founding member of the Justice League, his role having been taken over by Cyborg. And instead, he was a powerhouse member of the Wildstorm super team Stormwatch for just under a year. Paul Cornell, writer, Stormwatch. Stormwatch are the people who've been defending the world from alien things for centuries. And they're rather upset that in the last 10 years or so, people in capes and tights have come along and started to do it on an amateur basis. Stormwatch has long history. It's actually been the platform for launching quite a few careers in this industry. You're doing something a little different. It's coming into the DCU. Uh, Martian Manhunter's in there. Apollo and Midnighter aren't a couple yet. It's not coming into the DC universe. It's always been part of the DC universe. Okay. Or will have been after September. Yes. Okay, fair enough. Time travel grabber. Now, uh, there's there's a couple of very specific questions I have about the book. But before we get to kind of like my nerdy specific questions, Mm. tell me about the broad strokes of this book and what you hope to accomplish with it. Um, These are the professionals. Um, In the last 10 years of the DC universe, they've seen a whole bunch of amateurs in capes suddenly show up and start doing what they've been doing for hundreds of years. And Stormwatch are... They're they're not even particularly annoyed about it. They're slightly nonplussed and hope the amateurs don't get in the way. And um, this is uh, the lovely Warren Ellis um, authority um, arrogance. Okay. The feeling that these guys do know better. Right. And um, except, actually, when we join them, Stormwatch are a bit of an organisation in crisis and are nowhere near as good as they'd like to think they are. Interesting. And the first plot is about them having to deal with three things at once and the organisation basically falling apart. And then we've got this action adventure which is about that falling apart. The art on this book is extraordinary. M- Miguel. Yeah. Oh. And, uh, That's it, high praise considering it's a team book. Yeah. yeah team yeah. books are always much more challenging. Well, he's just surprising me time after time with his layouts, his settings, and his design. Um, we've got the Martian Manhunter, uh, who's uh, a, a warrior, who's a soldier. He's a little bit different to how you may remember him. And um, when you see how the Martian Manhunter fits in here, it's, it's just, oh, I see. That, that makes sense. Okay. That gig did not work out. He mind-wiped most of the former Authority members to not even remember he was ever a member of that team. And then he joined another setup. Justice League of America, a supposedly heroic team that was actually created by Amanda Waller as a countermeasure against the Justice League, with Martian Manhunter intended to be used to neutralize Superman should there be just cause. This series was notable for offering a Martian Manhunter backup strip written by Mind Management's Matt Kent. 
Well, why don't we talk about some of the other stuff that you're doing? You did mention you're working on the backup stories for Justice League of America. Jeff Johns and David Finch are doing the front, and you're doing the Martian Manhunter part in the back. Frankly, I think the Martian Manhunter is a perfect choice for, for you to write. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> He's a telepath. It's, a, it's funny because I've kind of liked that character for you know for a long time, but it, everyone always asks me, too. They're like, what character? If you could write a character in the DC Universe, what would you write? I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I, I don't know, like, other than sort of my nostalgia factor for some like the original Justice League and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. I like it all. So, uh, but yeah, when I got into Marshall Manhunter, I'm like, well, this, he he can basically be like the super 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 spy or whatever of uh, the DC universe. So I'm kind of taking that approach mm-hmm. with sort of a alien twist to it that he's you know he's sort of this lost soul of an alien. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because Martian Manhunter has always struggled over the years because he's just like, to most people, he's just a green Superman. If you've ever watched the Justice League cartoon series that Bruce Timm and Paul Dini did, they had Superman would fly up and Martian Manhunter would go down into the ground. And I always thought they really worked hard to make the, the, the difference between the two stand out. And, of course, Martian Manhunter looked like a Area 52 kind of alien instead of the, the way that he's looked in the past. Just a great big, huge hulking forehead. Are you going to approach the Martian Manhunter more as an alien? Or is he trying to become a part of human society? Which aspect of, of Martian Manhunter going forward do you think is, gonna, uh, is something you want to deal with? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing that is interesting to me about him is that is that struggle to be, you know, he's basically Superman even in his origin in a way where he's sort of the last of his kind or whatever. And so him struggling with that along with, you know, visually he doesn't fit in with society and earth necessarily. So that all that stuff is interesting to me. And really like, he's just like Superman in that he's super strong. He has all these crazy powers. He's basically indestructible, but he wasn't raised by humans. So to me, that's going to be the, that's the key right there to me is that, Clark Kent had Ma and Pa Kent to sort of form him. So even though he's technically an alien, he was all but born here and then was raised by humans. So he's always going to be connected to us in an easier way. Where Martian Manhunter is not, you know, and they're going to let me sort of get into his origin. I've started doing that now. I'm really going to expose that difference and then how that makes him different. That was going to be my next question. Are you going to be able to deal with his origin? Because I've read comics for a long, long time, and I remember how he got sort of transported here by an Earthling, and then the Earthling promptly dies and leaves him unable to go back to Mars. Are you going to update that for like how we look at things today? Yeah, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do it in a way that's sort of respectful to the the past and sort of the you know everybody that's worked on that character before, but also you know with the New Fifty Two, they're really wanting me to just tell a good story. So I'm going to take some of those elements and and not take others and just try to tell a really good story and try to be true to that character, you know, the base of that character, what he's about. And, uh, but yeah, they're going to let me get into the origin. Issue three of Justice League of America, I think, is um, you start to get a little glimpse of where he's from and stuff. Because he used to be part of Stormwatch, and for a while he was actually in the group, and then all of a sudden he just sort of left. Was that in preparation for Justice League of America? I guess so, you know, I didn't have much to do that. I know that talked to Jim Starlin and and uh, he's got some crazy stuff playing for Stormwatch. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure what I can say or anything, you know. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, don't get in trouble. I don't, I don't want you to get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I just, anyways, but yeah, I don't know what to say. <laughs> okay, well, well, I guess what we need to buy to find out what's going on and read them. So that'll, that's always a good way to go about it. Well, I've been doing the backups, and then I get to take over Justice League of America. They asked me if I wanted to do that, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> of course I will. First, right? Yeah, of course I will. And, uh, yeah, so uh, the fun of that is going to be 
you know, Marshall Manhunter, I'm going to get the chance to really push him to the front and make him sort of the star of that series for a while. Okay. And um, because and he's one of my favorite characters. And not just because I've been doing the backups, because I've, you know, like I grew up reading him back when Funny Justice League was happening and he was eating Oreos, you know. That might be the question I get most. I'm like, well, there's no Oreos. He's not eating Oreos, you know. He's done that. We get it. He does, he does like them. It goes unsaid that he likes Oreos, but... But yeah, I just, like to me, I think he's a good character because of the telepathy and the mind powers he has. It's a good entryway into all the other characters where you can sort of get into the minds of the the supporting cast, you know, and um, sort of reveal something about the whole team through him. And like, honestly, he's he's more powerful than Superman, you know, if you think about every power he has. Um, And the fun thing to me is... He's like Superman, except he wasn't raised by humans, you know? So it makes him a little scarier, I think, and it gives him an edge that Superman doesn't have. But I think it's a little more interesting to sort of explore that. That book was canceled after barely over a year despite reasonably good sales in order to launch yet another new title, Justice League United, in which the Martian Manhunter was joined by more science fiction-based characters for more cosmic adventures. But again, his run on that title was about a year long. We'll return with more Justice League on Cartoon Network. It's an old joke. Frank doesn't pronounce it thesaurus. He pronounces it thesaurus. Thesaurus? And when I asked him, what the f*** is a thesaurus? He's like, I don't believe in saying it thesaurus. It sounds like a dinosaur. Three friends. Come, my baby. The world is not right. The Looney Tunes Lands comes out. Too many topics. Please, save uh, my Galvatron. Uh, it's just so much been there, done that. Super cookie-cutter hip-hop with it. One podcast. The lead singer of Nickelback doesn't have demons. He gave away his heart. Zero giving. How sad is it that Axl Rose didn't kill himself for OD? Django. 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 Where did the plastic stop and the human flesh start? Oh, no. Tony, you're close. We're going to take you out of the podcast. <laughs> the World's Fine Podcast. It's just so well done. A very happy 60th from all of us at Kids WB. excited for 2016. In fact, I think we should record a promo about all the changes to the Fire and Water Podcast Network happening this year. What do you think, Rob? That's a great idea. We can mention the new folks joining the network and all the shows. I can talk about how we'll continue with our Aquaman and Firestorm show, and I want to be sure to plug my movie show, The Film and Water Podcast. What about you, Ryan? Oh, I think we should definitely record a promo. I'll mention how the Secret Origins Podcast is joining the Fire and Water Network, and then I'll introduce my newly relaunched shows, Give Me Those Star Wars and Power of Fishnets, The Black Canary and Zatanna Podcast. Sound good to you, Chris? Absolutely. I'll mention the show I record with my lovely wife, Cindy, Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. We should probably also mention the Power Records podcast Rob and I do, too. What about you, Siskoid? Well, sure. I can talk about my ensemble show, The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, and my new upcoming shows about the DC Comics crossover event, Invasion, and yes, Oh Hot Moo. Shag, you think we should mention Hero Points, the most occasional DC Heroes role-playing podcast? Sure, why not? And I can talk about Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, and mention my new upcoming show, Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast. Now, Here's what I'm thinking. When we record, I'm fine being the first person talking. I can explain all the changes to the Wait network. a minute, wait a minute, wait. Why do you get to start the promo? I'm just as much of a part of this as you are. It was my idea to create the Fire and Water podcast back in 2011. I should start off this promo. I kind of think it should be one of the new voices who kick off the promo. It'll shock the listener into attention if it's not Rob or Shag. 
Cindy and I make up two people in the network. Plus, you know, ladies first. So we should be the first people talking on the promo. Ben, voyons donc. You have what? got uh, what? to. We French cannot be the language of the Enough. Stop it. You're like boys with toys. Let's just make this simple. We can tell the folks at home, the Fire and Water Podcast Network is growing in 2016. Several new shows are joining the network. We'll have a new dedicated website, a Twitter account, and Facebook page, and folks will be able to subscribe to each individual show or all of them. See, now was that so hard? The Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available soon through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fireandwaterpodcast.com. Seriously, Shag, you had to get the last word, didn't you? We now return to Justice League on Cartoon Network. Help us, Father. Help us. Jean, beloved. Gods of Mars. Lose you again. Frank Plowright wrote the Myria Doll entry for Eagle Moss Publications. Although they grew up together, it was not until a number of Martians were abducted to Apocalypse that Myria came to really know her future husband, John Jones. When her younger sister was seized, she followed him to Apocalypse, cloaked in invisibility. There she helped rescue children from Granny Goodness's orphanage, returning with him to Mars via boom tubes. When John finally found his way back to Mars, Myria and he were joined. On their first night together, though, Myria experienced the intrusion of another consciousness from which recovery was slow. When relationships were resumed, the couple formed a daughter, Kim. Myria rushed to the aid of her suffering daughter as Hronmir's curse devastated the Martian race, but contracted the telepathic plague herself and died. Sean! Good to see you, Diana. I've got a lot to tell you about. We'll catch up later. Wouldn't miss it. A superhero doesn't survive 60 years without a little help from their friends. In the case of John Jones, the Martian Manhunter has been in more incarnations of the Justice League than virtually any other superhero, giving him relationships with most every superhero on Earth, but leaving him especially close with Superman, Batman, Aquaman, and Hawkman, as well as Justice League support staff like Elron, Oberon, and Max Lord. Getting so soundly rejected has caused me to question many of my life choices. I need to be alone, if you don't mind. Before coming to Earth, John Jones had a tense relationship with Glenn Gameron, a galactic bounty hunter. Thanks to his time on the Middletown Police Force, John Jones developed close relationships with Captain Harding, his supervisor, and Diane Mead, his police partner. Come on, John. We actually surprised you? It's been a busy week. I'd forgotten it was my birthday. Also, I'd never mentioned it to any of you. Uh, I hope you at least made a wish. Mike Carlin and Jeff Johns. This Absolutely is. love how he becomes a Martian Manhunter and his friends still trying to help. They, they're not scared. They not jump yet. on him. They're yeah. still there to, to help him. And it's they don't know what's going on. They're just trying to turn their friend off. Yeah, but it's so it's so uh, against the typical cliche. Yeah, people freak out because true. he's a Martian. John Jones has a history of working for, alongside, and against government agents. In the New Frontier, super spy King Faraday helped restore John Jones's faith in humanity at a point when he was ready to give up on Earth and return to Mars. You're looking for a place to go? I got one hell of a destination for you. But we might not come back. I'm ready. Meanwhile, Agent Cameron Chase fought to keep her director from revealing the many identities of Martian Manhunter when they fell into the TEO's hands. Jean had also worked with her superheroic father, the Acrobat, in the ill-fated super team, The Justice Experience, and at one point saved her life. David Harewood, actor... Supergirl. What kind of interaction will um, Hank Henshaw have with Cameron Chase? 
I'm going to put that to Greg um, <laughs> and to Andrew and myself, actually. I was reading a... It's wonderful. You know, I've been getting to read all these comics for my research, which is fantastic. <laughs> um, but I, I read one just the other day, and there's a great relationship that he has with, with her. Uh, I think she's a character that perhaps could could get on his case a little bit. And uh, so maybe... Um, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll be speaking to... Since the passing of his daughters, Kim and Tanya, John Jones has found himself drawn to a number of surrogate daughters, including Supergirl, Alex Danvers, Stargirl, and Gypsy. I won't quit. You don't have to. Since the death of his wife, Myria, John has lived to love again, very occasionally. He's had romances with Hunter Commander Jen of Mars 2, before their estrangement and her joining the militant group, the Soldiers of the Red Brotherhood. Jen assisted Jones in halting an invasion of Earth by Martian forces. Kishana Lewis was a California Forest Service firefighter who, as the descendant of Abel Carmody, inherited superpowers to defend the Earth against the demons of Black Spirit Lake. She was briefly the lover and ally of John Jones. Princess Carissa of Saturn was the betrothed of Jim before finding herself in John Jones's arms as they unraveled a conspiracy to murder her and usurp the throne. What are you doing? Trying to kiss you? On Earth, it's, um, a way of sharing affection. This is how we do it on Mars. Is it true that you can always judge a manhunter by the quality of his enemies? We'll take a look at the Alien Atlas's adversaries and you can judge for yourself. Starting with the Imperium. You came from Mars to warn us? We first encountered them a thousand of your Earth years ago. They were determined to make our planet their own. I was the only survivor. I sealed up their citadel to keep them in a constant state of suspended animation. For over 500 years, I stood guard over them. But then, while I was in a hibernation cycle, astronauts from Earth unsealed the stronghold and accidentally revived the invaders. With all the Martians gone, the invaders had nothing left to feed upon, so they turned their sights to Earth. I narrowly escaped and came here to warn of the coming danger. While I was being held against my will, the invaders sent advanced agents to disable Earth's defenses. They want to blot out the sun so they can live in perpetual darkness. All hail the Imperium! John Jones, it's been a long time. You have defied us for centuries. And I will never bow before you or any of your kind. Then we will personally see to finishing what should have been accomplished long ago. The elimination of the last Martian. You live underground and shun the light. Why? Does it burn your pale, putrid skin? Ooh, that's one nasty sunburn. Ultraviolet rays. Coming from the depths of space, the invaders have no resistance to our sun's radiation. Worn yourself out yet? Bow your head when you approach me. I am Jen. Master of the Faceless Hunters, conqueror of 12 worlds. Yeah, I heard you the first 10 times. It's not getting any more impressive. I'm trying to use your psychic powers, aren't you? Take control of my mind, force me to let you out. I hate to break it to you, Jim, but your cell has neural shielding. Your powers are useless. Been deactivated so that I may expose your true identity. As a coward, I will grind your loved ones to dust. There are none left to grind. They're called the Joining. 
A synthetic alien race that's ravaged over half the galaxy, like some plague of locusts, devouring and incorporating the technologies of every world they encounter. And they leave nothing in their wake but empty husks of planets. Synthetic race. The joining are robots. Mm -hmm. Built by a long-forgotten race who became their first victims. And they feed off technology. Anything industrial, mechanical, they simply take it and use it. It becomes a part of them. It's how they evolve. That's why they were targeting Wayne Industries. You're responsible for developing some of the most advanced technologies on this world. I was on my way here to help in the coming battle with the center. Center of what? It is a monstrous creature that fears you humans so much. It intends to eradicate every living soul on the planet. Like all things on this hurtling sphere, I emerged from the molten center of creation, but mine has been a unique path. Isolated, I developed attributes beyond those of lesser beings. Then the sphere was struck by a vast celestial stone. Black chunks of death filled the skies, and the world became a chaotic garden of doom. Soon the sphere began to nurture new kinds of life, and there was one that stood above all the rest. Its fragile shell belied its vicious nature. And in what seemed like a heartbeat, these things proliferated in both number and destructive means. Now they have harnessed the most destructive force. And I, the center, have concluded that the sphere must be cleansed of them. The only word I can find to describe the scale of this is biblical. It's a living island at least 25 miles across. It has large ports which discharge intense blasts of energy, but which can also draw things into the creature. Not two minutes ago, we watched it inhale an entire aircraft carrier. We're looking for a white Martian. That thing is like you? It's nothing like me. This creature belongs to a race devoted to the mission of killing me and mine. I brought it to National City. As Martians, we not only share our ability to shapeshift, we share our link. If I assume my true form or phase or reach out to it with my mind, it knows. My kind will come for me and you will die. They will come and you will know destruction. There are more of you? Thousands. Millions. In 1997, Scott Beatty wrote for Wizards JLA special about the Pale Martians, heretofore corrected as White Martians. Thousands of years ago, two races dominated the planet Mars, the Green Martians, from which JLA member John Jones descended, and the White Martians, who left the Red Planet behind to journey to a prehistoric Earth. Establishing themselves as masters of the Earth, these White Martians took entire control of the planet and inadvertently created a biological catastrophe which stopped all human life on the planet from becoming superhumans, which would have been the natural course of Homo sapien evolution. Ashamed of what their cousins had brought, the Green Martians traveled to Earth and put the White Martians on trial for shattering a universal law, thereafter sentencing the 70 existing White Martians to eternity in the Still Zone, also known as the Phantom Zone, and Stasis Zone in the DC Universe, an area of space where the White Martians would be rendered wraith-like and powerless for all time. Eventually, they do figure a way out and come back to Earth in order to take over again. And so that's when they come up against the Justice League. 
as the Hyper Clan, the advanced team of white Martians use their shape-shifting powers to become humanoid super beings. Only using a few of their many superpowers at a time, they appeared as a variety of heroes with different powers, including the charismatic Protex, the invisibility-powered Primade, the armored juggernaut Armet, the super-fast Zoom, the shield-wielding Zenturian, the wraith-like Amortal, the energy-eyed Tronix, and the changeling Fluxus. In addition to vast strength, super speed, light, invisibility, and telekinetic powers, like all Martians, the white Martians possess shape-changing abilities and the so-called Martian vision, telekinetic energy beams that are refined to the point of being able to smash through matter. And fortunately for the Justice League, like all Martians, the Hyper Clan have but one weakness, fire, which renders them quite helpless. A new order to the universe is coming, one that will be written in fire, and with the blood of all who oppose me. You would be wise to join me. What you want is irrelevant. The only will that matters is mine, the one true voice of the flame of Pytar. Frank Plowright wrote the Despro entry for Eagle Moss Publications' Superhero Collection 18, Martian Manager. This would-be conqueror of the universe has suffered numerous setbacks, but remains a lethal opponent. Originating from the planet Kalinor, he identifies the then-recently-formed Justice League as a future threat to his plans and targeted them, thereby suffering his first defeat. Despero would return to battle the League many times, his greatest humiliation coming when his consciousness was transferred into the Justice League's robot assistant. This was to his advantage as Despero was able to send his essence through the ether to possess John and fight the Teen Titans. Since being restored to his body, Despero has taken on the combined might of the Justice League and the Justice Society, and was indirectly responsible for the Infinite Crisis when he restored the memories of supervillains who knew the League's civilian identities. His most recent plan involved leading an alien invasion of Earth and setting Superman and Batman at each other's throats. Peter David. You used the Despero character in an issue of Supergirl and an issue of Young Justice. Do you have enjoyment of that character that you wanted to keep using him? Yeah, well, basically I think he's got a great visual. I think that Despero really looks freaking cool. So I decided to use him for a couple of issues. Such was bestowed upon me in the time of before. I was but a simple peasant, cast out because of my deformity. Alone and forlorn, I wandered in the wasteland, guided by an unknown hand of fate. It was when I was set upon by a gang of thieves bent on taking what little I had that the ultimate truth was revealed to me. Before the thieves could flee, the ground split asunder. A great flame shot forth and destroyed my assailants. But I was spared. My third eye opened and the flame spoke to me in a voice only I could hear. It told me of a time when Kalinor would become a paradise. Pytar charged me with the honor of leading my world to greatness and spreading its light across the galaxy. Behold, the flame of Pytar. R.A. Jones wrote, in 1983's Amazing Heroes number 30, John revealed to his comrades that in addition to being a scientist, he had been a military leader on Mars. The Red Planet had been locked in a worldwide civil war, with Jones leading the Desert Dwellers. His opponent was Commander Blanks, the leader of the white-skinned Pole Dwellers. The two factions struggled for possession of a gigantic tree of blue flame, which was the only source of heat on Mars. John Jones wanted to harness the flame to power spaceships, but Blanks wanted it for personal reasons of his own. At the climax of the civil war, Jones met Blanks in hand-to-hand combat, only to fall victim to treachery. And without the manhunter 
Jones' leadership, his fellow desert dwellers were soon defeated. Blanks, realizing that to execute Jones would give his people a martyr to rally around, instead ordered his foe to be exiled for a period of 13 years. It was during the first year of his exile that Professor Erdell's robot brain snatched Jones away from Mars. At the end of his 13-year sentence, John used the machine to transport himself back to his home world. It was a greatly changed Mars to which he returned, as his once proud cities were now nothing more than charred ruins. Jones eventually learned that Commander Blanks had been approached by a group of aliens from the star system of Antares, who had offered to buy Mars for his mineral wealth. But there was just one hitch. The code of the aliens would allow them to purchase Mars only if Blanks was the last living inhabitant. Blanks set out to meet this stipulation in a horrendous act of genocide. Using a spaceship provided by the aliens, Blanks bombarded the Tree of Fire with rays that caused the flame to leap beyond its bounds and engulf all of Mars. Since John Jones had no superpowers on Mars, there was nothing he could do to stop the Blue Inferno. Instead, using knowledge he had detained while on Earth, Jones directed the building of a space ark with which to evacuate the surviving Martians. When it became apparent that the vessel would not be completed in time, he used the last erg of energy remaining in the robot brain to teleport himself to Earth. There he recruited the aid of his fellow Justice Leaguers. Green Lantern's power ring was able to hurl the Azure flame out into the vacuum of space, but it was too late for Mars. The planet was now nothing more than a giant cinder on which nothing would ever grow. The few surviving Martians had succeeded in completing their space arc, and they now rocketed away from their world. Meanwhile, on the ravaged surface, John Jones had cornered Commander Blanks and again engaged him in personal combat. In a bit of poetic justice, Blanks fell to his death beneath a globe representing the Martian planet. After bidding a sad farewell to his friends in the Justice League, Jones commandeered the alien spacecraft used by Blanks and set out in search of his people. Everybody dies, child. That's not what I've heard about you. I'm Vandal Savage. I'm pleased to see you all here. You five are here because you each have a personal vendetta against a member of the Justice League. You wish to see them dead, while I have no personal enmity towards them. I have a vision for this world, and they would stand in my way. Their deaths would serve my goals. As Malafaak implied earlier, I'm very old. 50,000 years has been sufficient time to amass a fortune that dwarfs any other in human history. IGN.com ranked Vandal Savage the 36th greatest comic book villain of all time. An equal opportunity offender to a range of superheroes, Flash, the JSA, and Martian Manhunter to name a few, Savage's immortality has allowed him to become quite the foe in the DC Universe. His violence is only matched by his brilliance, a tactician who comes close to matching Luthor's superior intellect. In between becoming a founding member of the Injustice Society and the events of Final Crisis, Savage found time to travel through time and target the legacies and blood ties of several Golden Age superheroes. Vandal Savage's genius is a product of a millennia of combat and warfare, a life spent defying boundaries and redefining what a threat really is. In short, he's a very bad man, whose only limit is that he has none. Phil Morris, actor in the role of Vandal Savage. Justice League, Justice League Doom. Oh yeah, man, it's, it's yummy. It's, it's You just chew them up and, and spit them out, you know? <laughs> I, uh... You get the best lines and the best, like, you know you know, motivations from, mm-hmm. from these villains. Mm-hmm. Right, because the motivation has to be quasi-psychotic. It, I mean, mm-hmm. that's why they're villains. Yes, I mean, the, indeed. <laughs> the, the hero plays... I'll tell you something about Smallville. We're just going to go back a little bit. Um, in just having shot another episode, uh, Tom and I had a scene where we're talking about an issue that he has. Mm-hmm. And you don't really think about Superman with issues. Mm-hmm. You think about Batman with issues. Right. And psychoses and obsessions and that kind of thing. And I said, hey, man, this is a chance for us to play something a little different for this Superman mythos and play this uncertainty, play this other character that not, none of these other guys have played before. Okay. And it'll really separate you. But, but that speaks to the complexity of playing a villain. Mm-hmm. You want issues. You want problems. You want um, psychoses. Mm-hmm. You know, the stakes are high when you mm-hmm. want to take over the world or destroy the world. The stakes mm-hmm. are high when you want to kill Superman. Or You know what I'm saying? Sure. 
that stuff. And, and for me, it's the exact opposite on Smallville. Because as John Jones, I'm altruistic and positive and heroic and mm-hmm, right. mentoring and all that. So the stakes are high for me in order to combat the yang of life, the hardcore darkness of life. Mm-hmm. So you have to give yourself as the actor the high stakes. And I think Cree's talking about villains. The stakes are so high. Um, you know, what they're trying to get accomplished takes depth and dimension. So you've got to bring that as the character. Mm-hmm. Indeed. You hinted at a larger scheme and said there would be a place for us in it, should we so choose. I did. And the offer remains open to you all. But I fear you may lack the vision to go along with me. The next stage of my plans might be considered genocidal. What are you going to do? Destroy the world? Nothing so crude. Half. Two-thirds at the most. What possible profit could there be in destroying the world? The first thing you have to understand is that I am old. Older than the human race. I know that you believe this to be true. It is true. 80,000 years ago, I was living in what is now the island of Sumatra. One night, the sky lit up with streaks of fire. Meteors. But my primitive mind thought the stars were falling from the sky. One meteor fell to earth in my valley. My compatriots ran, but it was very cold, and the glowing stone was warm. I slept there, bathed in the meteor's strange radiations. And when I awoke the next morning, I was forever changed. radiation mutated me, evolving me. I was instantly aware of my increased intelligence. It was only with the passage of time that I discovered the rest of my gift. So far as I know, I cannot die. R.A. Jones continued. Three years of real time would pass before the fate of John Jones and the refugee Martians would be revealed. The story began with Superman investigating an alien building that would suddenly appear on Earth at a spot near the Great Salt Lake of Utah and then just as abruptly would disappear. During one of its periodic appearances, Superman entered the structure, which proved to be a war museum. Much to his surprise, the action ace discovered the Martian Manhunter inside, but then the building warped back to its original location, taking both heroes with it. Jones explained to Superman that he had tracked down his fellow Martians by following the ionized antimatter trail left by their space arc. That trail led him through a warp in space that hurled him to the star system Cygnus. The search ended on the fourth planet of that system, a planet once known as Vaughn. By deciphering a tablet he had found in the War Museum, John learned that most of the original inhabitants of the planet had fled to another galaxy in order to escape the attack of a warlock race known as the Thyven. Only the museum had remained, caught in the same warp that had brought Jones to Vaughn. The Thyvans had engineered their conquest through the use of huge androids known as Robochargers. These machines were fueled by the life forces of living beings. The Thyvans had captured the Martian refugees and were using them to refuel the Robochargers. During the course of aiding John Jones to free his people, Superman discovered that they had once again been betrayed by one of their own numbers. On this occasion, it was a lovely young woman named Belle Juz who delivered them into the hands of their enemies. In this tale, an unexpected development brought about doom for the evil Thyvans. The Robochargers, while draining the Martians' life forces, had also absorbed their minds. In the end, they turned on their former masters, destroying the Warmongers. One Thyvan who had escaped the rampaging Robochargers struggled with Superman inside of the alien war machine, and as they fought, the building carried them back to Earth. Superman overcame the Thyvan warrior, but their battle had wrecked the museum, thus ending its planet hopping. Superman never did have the opportunity to warn John Jones of Belgeuse's treachery. She still plots mayhem in the very midst of her people. Sire, if this continues, think of the consequences. Why, people are already starting to talk about... Rebellion? 
There's not gonna be any rebellion. Not if I can keep giving them fights. Good ones. Enough to take their minds off their troubles. What's this? The Kryptonian. He tried to escape. A pity. I was hoping to build him up with some preliminary matches, but now I'll have to make an example of him. Are you ready, Kryptonian? I won't fight for your amusement, Mongol. <gasps> A bold move. But let's see how long his idealism lasts on War World! R.A. Jones continued, A villainous alien named Mongul captured Superman's friends Steve Lombard, Jimmy Olsen, and Lois Lane. In return for their release, he demanded that the Man of Steel retrieve for him a crystal key locked in a crypt on the fifth planet of the Cygnus star system. You will recall that the neighboring planet is the home of the misplaced Martians, referred to in this story as New Mars. As Superman prepared to enter the crypt, he found himself confronted by the Martian Manhunter, who divulged the true significance of the key. The key would allow its bearer to enter and activate a giant satellite known as War World, an awesome engine of destruction. The key had come into the hands of a peaceful race known as the Largas, who placed it in the crypt. Unfortunately, the Largas were a dying race, but before the last of them passed on, he entrusted the safekeeping of the key to the Martians. John Jones warned Superman that the key must not be taken from the vault, a warning the Kryptonian chose to ignore. The Manhunter then engaged Superman in combat to prevent his seizure of the key. Superman won the struggle by igniting the carpet of the ground with his heat vision, hence surrounding Jones with a ring of fire. Despite this initial defeat, it was Jones who, using his power of invisibility, performed the rescue of Superman's friends. He and the Man of Steel, however, were unable to prevent Mongol from escaping with the key. But in the next issue, Superman and his cousin Supergirl would defeat Mongol and destroy World War. I had a question, and I think I know the answer to it, uh, since you mentioned uh, Thanos and him being, uh, you pretty much giving him away to Marvel at the time that you created him, uh, you know, 30 plus years ago. But, and this, and the question isn't really about regret, but I'm just always curious if there was one thing in your past as a creator that you could change for either personal reasons or, uh, or for your benefit financially or otherwise, what would that be? Oh, I would have liked to still have a piece of Thanos because, you know, he, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, clearly a moneymaker, mm-hmm. uh, I also created a character named, uh, Mongol over at DC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mongol, on the other hand, has paid off pretty well for me over the years. Okay, good, okay, Because I've been able to, you know, I was able to keep a creator piece of that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, uh, every so often, uh, something comes down, and, uh, I ran into Len Wein out in San Diego, and he was... All hot, and because Mongol had been, uh, uh, he, he had he had come up with a name, mm-hmm. actually, and so uh, Mongol was just recently used in a, a video game, and so both of us had just gotten a nice paycheck from Mongol. Okay, <laughs> and so you know, uh, Lynn was more than happy to talk about Mongol. <laughs> okay, but be- uh, before I ask you one other thing about that, was did you create him prior to the run in DC Comics Presents, or was that his first appearance? That was his first appearance. Okay, awesome. okay. He was he was more or less my uh, DC. Uh, Your DC uh, Thanos? Thanos. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he was never meant to be anything other than that. I wasn't there like with Thanos to sort of guide it. Coming back every so often and doing a phase of the Thanos series. So where Mongo's gone is where Mongo has gone. Um, you work for a company and you work uh, as work for hire. You have to expect that there'll be changes. And um, Mongo is where he's at now. Uh, there's been some fine stories. Uh, Alan Moore did a terrific story uh, with Mongo and Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman. There's been a couple. 
one of the ones, uh, you know, he, he does seem to be kind of a mindless rager these days, but, you know, uh, I don't really follow those books all that closely, so I'm probably not the one to judge. Thanos is much more sophisticated, uh, more the schemer, his, he's more successful, for one thing, in his schemes. Um, also, Thanos uh, has developed as a character more than Mongol ever has. Um, Thanos is a being like Adam Warlock, uh, sort of outside the reality of the rest of the universe. Uh, whenever one of these big cosmic crises arise, uh, Thanos is almost always brought in as one of the key players in it. So. Justice Leaguers. In a matter of moments, my revenge on Gorilla City will be complete. These fools who refuse to live under my rule die at my hands. From 1994's Hero Special Edition, comic book villains, the baddest of the bad. Gorilla Grodd is a would-be world conqueror, telepath, and great ape. Grodd may appear simply as a large gorilla, but he is actually a full-on criminal mastermind and scientific genius. He is one big twisted purple ape. His origins trace as far back as the mid-1800s, when an alien spaceship crash-landed down into darkest Africa. A tribe of gorillas came upon the ship, finding a multicolored gemstone and a small alien being. The gem was set off by the gorilla's touch and bathed the entire tribe in rays of light. With a focus beam hitting the yin and yang of the tribe, Solovar, the leader, and Grodd, the bad penny. The light began a mental evolution inside the apes that increased their brain power. On top of this, Solovar and Grodd also found themselves the recipients of telepathic and telekinetic abilities. After time, the apes began communicating and soon their grasp of science had surpassed human understanding. Gorilla City was soon built deep in the jungle, a backwoods utopia of sorts. Humankind and these super gorillas had to face off eventually. Grodd eventually took control of Gorilla City, but the old leader of the tribe, Solovar, was able to use his mental powers to contact Barry Allen, the Silver Age Flash. Allen managed to stop Grodd from his plan of world conquest. He has made several attempts toward global dominion, nearly succeeding but for the intervention of the Flash and other superheroes. Who are you? Your new lord and master. You may call me Darkseid. Let the universe howl in despair, for I have returned. As ever, to search for the anti-life equation, that I may bring order to this aimless universe. Jake Black writes for Eagle Moss Publications. When Darkseid and his cronies from Apocalypse arrived on Mars, they were able to conceal their true natures and appear as friends and allies. Darkseid's personal assassin, Kanto, even formed a bond with John, enjoying deep philosophical discussions on a wide range of subjects. This all ended the day Darkseid's forces abducted several Martian children and adults, including John's father. John's subsequent rescue mission to Apocalypse resulted in the return of the children, along with his father, but John himself was forced to remain there for years. He spent his time on Apocalypse studying under the brilliant scientist and revolutionary Hyman, and was a persistent nuisance to Darkseid, doggedly evading capture. An exasperated Darkseid eventually had to return John to Mars himself. John's brother, Ma'alifa Ak, remained under the thrall of Darkseid and unleashed Ronmir's curse, a telepathic plague named after the Martian deity of fire and death. Who are you? My name is Kanto, Mr. Manheim. 
I've been authorized to offer you some assistance. Please put away your so-called weapons. I can assure you they're quite unnecessary. I come bearing gifts. Frank Plowright wrote for Eagle Moss Publications, Canto is a far more refined person than many of his colleagues on Apocalypse think. He sees no contradiction between his personality and his position as Darkseid's chief assassin, an occupation he follows with relish, treating killing as an art. Prior to his appointment, he had been a student named Eluthan, who stole the weaponry of Darkseid's then-assassin Canto Thirteen. For the crime of being caught, he was exiled to Earth, then in the Renaissance period. When his wife-to-be was murdered, he returned to Apocalypse, ascended to his current post, and assumed the Canto name. He was among the earliest alien visitors to Mars, but any friendships formed were secondary to his serving Darkseid. Canto is also a master of political intrigue, a talent that's largely served him well among the self-serving individuals that make up Darkseid's elite, although on occasion, his machinations have angered Darkseid himself. The scary guy's Malafalak. What's that supposed to be? An invitation. Why are you here, Malafa'ak? To buy you a drink. It's laced with a chemical that has an odd effect on Martian biology. You couldn't taste it over the soda. It's a poison. Uh, uh, oh, it won't kill you. Your, your body, body will filter it out in a few hours. Unfortunately, you'll sweat the poison out of your pores. It's magnesium, by the way. No, you must get everyone away from me. You're all in grave danger. Frank Plowright wrote the Malefic entry. Unlike most green Martians, Malefic, full Martian name, Ma Alifa Ak, twin brother to John Jones, was a rebel spirit, questioning their enclosed society and prioritizing his scientific studies at the expense of his theological calling. Called the book, he revealed he'd been in contact with the new gods of Apocalypse, whose visit proved disastrous for the Martians. Malefic was abducted with others, his mind fractured and reintegrated on Apocalypse. He survived having his memory wiped as punishment for his crimes, and eventually caused the death of his entire race when he unleashed Huron Mir's curse, a plague that spread telepathically. Years later, he escaped his entombment on Mars to wreak havoc on Earth, carrying out vile experiments on living beings, which he initially attributed to John. Malefic succeeded in turning the world against his brother for a while. He was last seen aboard a spacecraft flying into the heart of the sun, a Martian's ultimate fear personified. Mike Carlin and Jeff Johns. Yeah, it's not the usual Legion of Doom. No. It's got a lot of the newer takes on characters, which is great. Yeah, this, this character right here. Yep. I like they figured out the pronunciation of that yeah. for us. First time in a cartoon. Created by John Ostrander and Tom Mandrake for yep. the Martian Manhunter series, I believe. Yeah, because Martian Manhunter had very few, if any, villains of his own. He was always just a Justice League guy. Well, so when you don't have your, your own series, there, I think that's why a lot of like Aquaman, how many villains does Aquaman have? Because he, he doesn't, hasn't had his own series a long, yeah. long time. Creepy. I think it shows the, the, <laughs> in, in, the uh, psychological profile of this villain here is this is how they decide to get it John <laughs> so there's obviously some yeah. kind of hatred and love <laughs> battling there they're the last two survivors of the Martian community yeah this is really cool and this is just a small selection of the vile menagerie of villains to face the alien atlas 
Others include Brett, a yellow-skinned Martian convict who escaped captivity to Earth before being recaptured by Martian Manhunter. He was responsible for altering John Jones's powers and revealing his existence on Earth. Cayenne, a green Martian who holds John Jones responsible for Ronmer's plague due to his unwillingness to kill his brother Malafa'ak before his initiating the genocide. She developed an intricate plan for revenge involving brainwashed white Martians and the Department of Homeland Security that ultimately failed. Diabolu, an ancient Babylonian wizard who was so loathed mankind that he created an idle head full of monstrous evils to be unleashed at his pleasure. Diabolu died, but centuries later his idle head was activated, wrecking havoc at monthly intervals. Dr. Trap, a human serial killer who blames superheroes for the death of his wife and sets elaborate traps to execute them in retaliation. The Headmaster, a mad scientist who implanted his brain into a cyborg body. Leaving Earth to be doomed, Headmaster began harvesting other human minds to outlive the planet in his spaceship, which was destroyed by John Jones. The Lizard Men, a Saurian alien race who briefly conquered much of Earth in the late 1950s before being defeated by Martian Manhunter. The Marshal of the Red Brotherhood, a green-skinned military leader associated with Bell Juz who staged a successful coup on Mars 2. He launched a failed invasion of Earth, which was routed by Martian Manhunter and the Justice League of America, ending his career in shame. Mr. V, a.k.a. Faceless, the mastermind behind the international crime organization Vulture. John Jones assumed the new identity of Marco Xavier to bring down the operation. The mask manipulator's identity was repeatedly revealed as one proxy after another until he was presumably uncovered and killed in an explosion. Professor Arnold Hugo, a human scientist who artificially expanded the size and capacity of his head and brain. He then began a crime spree in Gotham City before expanding to Middletown and beyond. This brought him into repeated conflict with the incarceration by Martian Manhunter, as well as a case involving Batman and Robin, the Prophet, an exceptionally powerful alien religious zealot who came into conflict with the Manhunter. Tor, a non-destructible robot built on Mars who was accidentally programmed for crime. Tor was eventually tricked into boarding a rocket ship bound for a planet whose atmosphere could destroy Tor. The robot briefly managed to project its mind into an Earthling host body, but eroded to nothing before he could kill the Manhunter from Mars. And Volcor, the Capsule Master, a green-skinned Martian criminal who employed a high-tech vehicle to collect weaponry for use against Mars and beyond. He was arrested on Earth and extradited by Martian Manhunter and Green Arrow. Well, speaking of bad guys, you, you've all faced so many. Are there any that really stick out or that you hope you don't have to face again? What about you, John? Does fire come? <laughs> no. What about an insatiable desire for delicious screen-filled cookies? <laughs> oh, I was really shooting for, you know, people or a team or something. I'm a shape-shifting telepath with the strength of Superman and the ability to phase unless they're made of flaming Oreos. I'm not impressed. <laughs> Stay tuned. Kids WB will return. Come, Pinky. To tell you the story of Green Lantern is to tell you the story of the birth of a universe. The origins of DC as a whole. It's a magic emerald meteor from space in the 1940s. It's the establishment of the JSA. It's the birth of the Silver Age. It's the introduction of a universal police force. It's the formation of the JLA. It's the emergence of the multiverse. It's a crisis in both space and time. It's an emerald dawn. And it's an emerald twilight. It's the brightest day. And the blackest night. And the Lantern cast covers all of this and everything in between. We're Green Lantern's greatest advocates and fiercest critics. We've been fans for years, and it's the reason we're self-proclaimed Lanternologists. So find us on iTunes and Stitcher and give us a listen. Because the history of Green Lantern really is the history of the DC Universe. And we've got the interviews, commentaries, reviews, and more to back it up.
You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. This way, two commercials. Hey, it wasn't my idea. Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in the many excellent comics from writer and artist Mike Grell. Warlord Worlds is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at warlordworlds.com. Welcome to Astro City, a Pulp to Pixel podcast, an issue-by-issue ratings and review of pre-owned comic book series Astro City, by the writer-artist team of Kurt Cusick, Brent Anderson, and Alex Ross. You can find episodes of Welcome to Astro City and other Pulp to Pixel podcasts at pulptopixel.blogspot.com. Pulptopixel.tumblr.com through the iTunes store under the Pulp to Pixel Podcasts and through Facebook at the Pulp to Pixel Podcast webpage. Stay tuned for these words from our lovely sponsor. Way to kiss up, Dot. You're listening to Comic Reflections. I'm your host, Nicholas Prom. And I'm his spunky sidekick, Jeff Barnhart. Comic Reflections is a proud member of the Rhymes with Geek podcast network. You can listen to our show, plus loads of others like Super Podcasto Magnifico, Real Books Don't Have Batman, Feed It Comics, and loads and loads of others at rhymeswithgeek.com. Hi, I'm Kyle Benning, and I love comics. In fact, I love them so much that I ramble on about them on a number of podcasts, all on one feed, found under the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun banner. I talk about comics with extra page counts, like Treasury Comics, Prestige Format Books, DC's Dollar Comics, Marvel's Giant Size Specials and King Size Daniels, and much, much more. I also love to talk about DC's Christ on Multiple Earth crossovers, free comics from Special Promos, Free Comic Book Day, Star Wars, My Life as a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan, random comic book back issues, and many other elements of geek culture that happen to strike my fancy. There's new content usually dropping at least once a week, and it's all found on one feed. 
You can subscribe via iTunes. Just search for King Size Comics Giant Size Fun in the iTunes Store or podcast app on your iPhone. Otherwise, you can follow the podcast at the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun blog headquarters, available at www.kingsizecomicsgiantsizefun.blogspot.com. That's all one word: King Size Comics Giant Size Fun. .blogspot.com or follow on Facebook by simply searching for King Size Comics Giant Size Fun. So for snappy review and discussions on comics, new and old, usually done from the front seat of my car or my lunch break at work, check out King Size Comics Giant Size Fun. It seems it's time to return to Kids WB. I may be from Mars, but I've had my share of injuries. Why, this is just like the time Shaggy Man bit my entire arm clean off. Took a debilitating 10 seconds for it to grow back. Jeff Johns, writer, JLA, Justice League, Justice League America, Mike Carlin, group editor, Superman titles. Now, this is really interesting. We had talked about um, Martian Manhunter, Detective mm-hmm. uh, John Jones. It was really cool seeing a scene with him. Yeah, you don't see the private life of the Martian Manhunter at all in Justice League comics. And it's very different than Clark Kent or, mm-hmm. or anyone else because... Yeah, he's not the rich guy. Well, he's just, he's alien. You can see it. He doesn't know how to act with all people. These, yeah, it's just a brilliant take. Like, I don't, I'm not sure that the books have ever really captured on that because even in the short-lived series he had in the 90s... Yeah, the, uh, Ostrander had a cool take on it, it was Martian really, Manhunter, but it also kept him from becoming completely human like Superman has. Uh, Superman has really integrated himself as a human in human society. And Martian Manhunter had not just one secret identity, but thousands all around the world, which is a cool idea, but you don't get settled in that way. And you certainly don't learn how to uh, interact. Now, he was a member of the Justice League a lot when you were overseeing editorial, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, there was a point where Martian Manhunter was the only member of every incarnation of the Justice League. I don't know if that's true anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> well, I, I think actually I don't he wasn't, think he he wasn't a Brad Meltzer. Yeah. yeah. No. It, he, it took him long enough. He got his own comic. Then he doesn't have to be in the Justice League anymore. <laughs> He'll be back, though. Martian Manhunter gets really messed up in this whole movie, doesn't Yeah, they're he? really kind of mean to him. Yeah. But he can take it. I, what I like about him in this movie is they, they actually make him really cool and very different than Superman. In the comics a lot, he's kind of like Superman, but he can be invisible. So he's got one more power than Superman. But here he's... He's very he's, alien. We are actually talking to Dwayne about uh, writing a Martian Manhunter comic book uh, before he passed away. Oh, that would have been cool. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Gail Simone, writer, also speaking for Devin Grayson. This is going to sound pathetic, but I never got John until I wrote him. The same thing to a lesser degree with Superman, the Mad Hatter, even Wonder Woman to a smaller degree still. I never really adored them until I had to write their dialogue and then it was just bam, instant love. Devin Grayson told me the same thing about John. It's not that I think I'm so brilliant, all the great stuff was already there, it's just that I I'd never taken the time to look inside his head. Now I adore him. In the 60 years since the introduction of the Manhunter from Mars in 1955, John Jones's birthdays have tended to go completely unheralded. But the 60th anniversary is proving to be quite the exception. And in fact, 2015 may be one of the most important years in the history of Martian Manhunter. The Alien Atlas received only his second ongoing series ever this year. The first to be published in nearly 15 years. And the character made his debut on network television before possibly the broadest audience in the character's history. 
Rob Williams, writer, Martian Manhunter. John Johns is a character I've always had a soft spot for. And then you try and kind of come up with something, you know, some kind of approach is sort of a little bit different and a little bit sort of yourself. And also something that hopefully will get will get people excited. We had a really good reaction. We did a we did a free eight page preview story as, as all the new DC launch books did. Um, mm-hmm. And, and this, that seemed to go down pretty well. So, you know, fingers crossed pe- people like what we're doing, because it's in one sense, it's it's the John Johns you recognize. And in another sense, it's it's doing a little bit something a little bit different with the mythology but it but it's it's a lot of fun and yeah i'm i'm really enjoying it but it fits and i mean that's the i mean i appreciate a radical change from you know what's come before with certain characters yeah. and certainly characters that were created in the silver age and golden age of course but you know they were more ciphers that really uh, you go back to those old house was it house of mystery yeah yeah, the the House of Mystery, or even the the detective backups that John Jones had, and you know, I mean, honestly, it could easily have been a Hawkman story, or an Adam Strange story, or even a Green Arrow story. Yeah, as you know, as and in fact, Green Arrow and uh, Martian Manhunter were, uh, you know, the occasional crossovers and stuff. Go ahead and describe. I mean, I, you know, I mean, like I said, the eight page preview's been out there. So, but if people haven't seen it and stuff, you've got a human that that comes with a very specific point of view on the way that John Jones has uh, conducted himself since coming to Earth. Yeah, I mean, I was, it's, it's trying to kind of get your head around. This guy, when you when you get given a job like this, you kind of look into the character and you try and get your head around what's interesting about him and, and, and some kind of angle where you can, some kind of hook where you can run with. And, and for John, it's kind of like, he's he's this enormously powerful figure. I mean, he's just like, he's if you look at the Justice League, he's probably the heavy hitter out of all of them. Sure. Maybe, maybe, maybe him and Superman would be an issue but then i take john because of the whole thing with like the telepathy and, and the shape shifting and so if he's so powerful and, and and he can look like anything he wants to look and you kind of think well why does he look sort of like this kind of green kind of strange slightly off figure who looks human but kind of isn't and and it's it's almost like it's almost like a bad job. Do you know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> it's he, you know the guy can look like he could look like Brad Pitt if he wanted to, and he chooses to look the way he does. I mean, you start to think, well, why? Why is that? And then you kind of think, well, is it? You know, one way of looking at it would be maybe he's he wants to stay true to his Martian heritage, but he doesn't look like that. As a, that's not that's, his, right. that's not his true form. So then you kind of go. I think maybe whether or not this is a conscious thing for him or, or it's on a subliminal level, I think he wants to kind of he wants us to keep clear. He wants to be that loner that that is inherent in 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 the character, the loneliness, the the outsider, the kind of the, the pathos. And I I think he wants us to. He looks like a, almost like a bad excuse for a superhero. And I think it's because he wants us not to be scared of him. Because the the fact of the matter is, if you saw what he really is and what he was really capable of, you would be scared of him. And I think there's a, there's a sense of like with John is like don't get too close because uh, the, the actual reality of, of his capabilities uh, is is pretty terrifying. So then you, when when you go into that, you you start looking at that and you kind of think, well, he's here and he's 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 on Earth and he's the last Martian, but then. But what you know? What if he's not? And and I mean, I know that in, in the past, you know, Grant Morrison uh, with his Justice League run did a did a thing with the, with the Martians coming back, and John wasn't the only uh, the only Martian. But then once you get into that that line of thinking as well, I mean, you start playing with the mythology, and you think, well, maybe the things he's been telling us all these years about his history uh, isn't the whole truth, and maybe he is the last of his kind. That was true, but what? 
he's never really told us is exactly what the last of his kind is. So these are all questions we're going to tease out and we're going to answer eventually. And it's and this is what I mean. It's about staying true to what makes the character a great character and what makes people love him. But also trying to come up with something a little bit contemporary and, and different. Uh, trying to put a tiny bit of a new spin on it. And and, tr- and basically trying to... I, I wanted to get across more than anything just the threat of this guy. Sort of just like, he's not a joke. He's He's to be taken very, very seriously. And there's a lot of great drama that you can pull out of that. Absolutely, and I think unintentionally, a lot of the big events have made John more. They, they've really either spoken to his own vulnerabilities. Uh, was it and and oh, it was if uh, it was Final Crisis, mm. you know, and 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 you know, having his lame uh, one of his lame fifties villains come back and you know burn him alive in front of all the other villains and stuff like that, and to show how weak he could be. Mm. And I and I thought that was interesting, but by the same token, it really minimized what the Martian Manhunter represents. And I like your level of paranoia yeah. that comes through on one of the characters that's really examining John. There's a character in, in the Eight Pitch Preview who will be coming back called Helen Demoff. She's a NASA scientist. Mm-hmm. She actually says, "Look, he's he's uh, with with his um, telepathy as well. Um, what if you know what we think of him is not." is what he's wanted us to think all this. Yes. How do you know when you're, when you're dealing with a, a telepath of that level, suddenly that kind of puts a huge w- area of a, whoa, you know, I mean, yeah. when you have to question every thought and every decision you've made about this character along the way, if you've known him, well, was that my thoughts or was that his thoughts? Uh, was that what he wanted us to think? And, and, and so all these things come into it. And, and the, the whole thing with paranoia is part of it. I mean, one of the themes is news media sort of gets us all fearful, you know, just like so much, <laughs> so much of every, you know, every newspaper and every TV show, you, you, every TV news you put on, it wants you to be afraid of one thing or another. And, and um, this is something that's going to play into it again. And, and the whole idea of an outsider amongst us, a shapeshifter amongst us, you know, the, the, are you going to see, without giving too much away, what the Martians want us to do is, is that they want us to do it. They, it's not an overt invasion in, in the traditional sense. It's just kind of nudging humanity mm-hmm. to kind of towards our, 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 our worst instincts really which is something that you'll turn on the news and you'll see every day and there's there's a one of the key lines again in the series is when you turn on the news in the night and you see all these things around the world that you can't believe human beings could ever do and you think well, well what if human beings didn't do that what if something else did it and and just wants us to be fearful uh so all these things come into it and there's certain sort of i guess one of the easy comparisons is like this homeland there's elements of homeland in it the tv show but a lot more as well there's different approaches in within one book there's one storyline is very much sort of more noirish and kind of like and then there's elements of horror even like john carpenter's the thing is in there because um, again, they're shapeshifters. <laughs> sure, <laughs> like, sure. And fire—they don't like fire. Again, that's John Carpenter's the thing. And then you, right. you've also got a, a, a character in it, a brand new character who's very much like a Studio Ghibli kind of film, like very much like a Miyazaki type of character. Yeah, it's just trying to have fun with it and trying to throw different ideas at it. And, and, and one thing I do hope is like when people have, have expectations when they read number one, it's gonna—it's not going to be the book they think it is going in. I think. Interesting. Well, I, I do look forward to reading the rest and uh is there room for john jones's human detective secret identity in the book or is it primarily the alien uh, you'll see that you'll you, there's I, I don't i can't give too much away with that but there's um i'm trying to 
stay true to that the kind of history of the character, but also trying to put a new spin on it. So I, sure. I'm afraid I can't. I, I don't want to give too much away there. I think for for John Johns, it's it's an entirely different thing because there's not that cutesy on. No one can find out who right. who I am to protect my loved ones or whatever, like the old the old the old standards. It's it's entirely more for him. I think it's it's he wants to know what it's like to be a human being. And that makes perfect sense for the character. He's here. He is trying to reach for something, some kind of ownership and understanding and empathy and all these things. And also there can be, that could be a sinister thing as well. You know, if you, it, the guy you've got to know the last couple of years, you know, turns out he's a Martian. Right. Who may might have um, certain sort of uh, untoward sort of um, uh, reasons for, for, for being here and be and, and pretending to be this person. So, um, but then I, that's not entirely the case with John. You know, one, one thing again okay. is like, there's going to be a lot of gray area with this. Interesting. Well, no, I, I think that's good. And I hope uh, again, without you giving anything away that, Really, his motivations are explored and that it isn't just, well, deep down, we know, you know, it's, of course, he's a hero. Of course, he, you know, because yeah. I understand it's got to be the lead. I appreciate the complexity that I think current writers in whether wh- whether it's comics, film, television, whatever, that they do take it a step further. And, you know, a guy like Dexter can have a show on Showtime and he's the hero. Yeah. And, and and be you know as bad as he could be, and it's something. And I'm I'm going to throw another guy at you because you're writing Doctor Who. But it, you you kind of play with it, but you can't. I think what's interesting when you do this, it does intrinsically make the character more interesting. But at the end of the day, the reason people love these books and love John Johns and why they love the doc the Doctor is is they are heroes. You know that is at the absolute heart of it. Of their, their journey along the way. If you can make it interesting and layered and textured and all these things. But at the end of the day, you can't ever forget that, you know, they're taking down the bad guys, uh, ultimately. That, that's something you've always got to cling on to, I think, otherwise you get lost. In 2014, Warner Brothers Television began developing a Supergirl television show with producers Greg Berlanti and Ali Adler. Eventually joined by Andrew Kreisberg, Melissa Benoist would play the titular Maid of Might, while Kyler Lee would play her adoptive sister, Alex Danvers. Both worked with a secret government agency, the Department of Extranormal Operations, which was run by Hank Henshaw, as played by David Harewood. The series debuted on CBS television on October 26, 2015, and received nearly 17 million total viewers. When I was a child, my planet Krypton was dying. I was sent to Earth to protect my cousin. But my pod got knocked off course, and by the time I got here, my cousin had already grown up and become Superman. And so I hid my powers, until recently when an accident forced me to reveal myself to the world. To most people, I'm an assistant at CatCo Worldwide Media. But in secret, I work with my adoptive sister for the DEO to protect my city from alien life and anyone else that means to cause it harm. I am Supergirl. At the beginning of the pilot, we see Kara as a young girl on her planet of Krypton. Kara's parents sent her and Kal-El off in their own ships. And hers kind of got knocked off course and was stuck in the Phantom Zone, which is this area in her galaxy that time doesn't pass. When she got here and Kal-El, her cousin, finds her, he's already grown up and become Superman. He placed me with my adoptive family, the Danvers. No, I'm not your mom, sweetheart, but you're safe here. They had a daughter, Alex, 
Alex loves Kara tremendously and would do anything for her. But it's an interesting dynamic with the parents. There's comparisons here and there and a lot of pressure for Alex to really take care of Kara and protect her and watch over her. So she was sort of asked to kind of just step aside and hide herself. You exposed yourself. Everyone will know about you and you can't take that back. She's a scientist and she's, you know, smart. And so for a lot of reasons, she gets brought into the DEO. I think in a way the, the relationship that excites me the most is the one between Kara and Alex. I have a conference in Geneva and I need to be on a plane in two hours. And I have a blind date in a half an hour and I need you to help me pick out what to wear. What's amazing about Alex, and, and certainly, you know, portrayed by the amazing Kyler Lee, is that Alex would be the star of her own show if her sister wasn't Supergirl. There's no one I trust more. Like her cousin, she was sent here too, to help us. And if you want any more of my help, we're gonna let her. David Harewood is the nicest man ever, and you barely know he's British on our show. Um, he, he plays American uh, as Hank Henshaw. It's Agent Danvers and her sister from another planet. They're an organization known as the DEO, which uh, hunts aliens. I'm still learning. Our job is keeping people in the dark about alien life on Earth, and nothing says covert operation like a flying woman. Hello, recruit. I'm Kyla Lee. And I'm David Harewood. We're going to introduce you to the DEO. Or as we say, the DE is. The DEO monitors and protects Earth from extraterrestrial presence and or invasion. That means you. When Supergirl arrives, her spaceship drags this other spaceship out of what we call the Phantom Zone. And that ship crashes on Earth along with, along with Kara's. Fort Roswell was a prison ship. And these imprisoned aliens uh, run off into various corners of the of the world, the DEOs formed to kind of track them, capture them, and uh, uh, lock them up. So that's just a snippet of some of the things we have here at the DEO. So stay tuned, keep watching. To CBS. Buckle and up. buckle up because it's going to be a bumpy ride here on Supergirl. I'm pinching myself all the time, just going, what am I doing? This is awesome. David Harewood, actor, Doctor Who. Homeland, Supergirl. How much do you know about the long-term arc of, of your character? Do they tell you things, or are you just getting it script by script? Oh, I, I think all of us are in a position where, you know, having, you know we've only, all of us have only just shot the pilot. I mean, perhaps Melissa may know a little bit more, but, um, you know, this is this is yet to be unpacked. You know, the, the, the exciting thing is we've got, it's a deep mythology, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of stories, a lot of storylines, so it really is a, a, it's going to be a question of which direction do we want to take, and I have to say I'm really excited about it because um, yeah, this is exciting stuff, you know. And you know, living in an age where TV can make a lot of this stuff look great, so. Of course, your character is one that comic fans, uh, aficionados, will already be a little familiar with. But for those who aren't, can you tell us a little bit about where you fit into the series and just how much of you we're going to see? Well, uh, you'll see a lot of me uh, pre um, my uh, comic book carnation. I play a character called Hank Henshaw who uh, ends up becoming Cyborg Superman and um, battling Superman and all the other superheroes, which I kind of like because in the last two shows I've been blown up. And um, when I get to be Cyborg Superman, you can't kill me, so I'm indestructible. So I'm looking forward to that. And David, um, without spoiling it because I want you guys to see this, but your character is, it's kind of hard to get a read on this guy. I can't tell if he's a good guy who's bad with people. (laughs) <laughs> or if he's a bad guy 
that's bad with people? I think, I think that's pretty good. I, I like to keep people guessing. Mm-hmm. So the gray area, I think, is where, where this character exists. You, you don't quite know exactly who he is, if he's, if he's got good intentions or bad intentions. I think you're just going to have to wait and see. For those that didn't get to see it at Comic-Con or didn't download it on the internet when it leaked, uh, tell us a little bit about your character. He runs a secret agency? I run a secret agency called the DEO, the Department of Extra Normal Operations. And uh, he's a bit, he hangs a bit of a tough cookie. Um, kind of no-nonsense, straight as, straight as they come. But he does have a, he does have a dark secret, which will, get, which will be, which surprise a lot of people further, further down the line. Now, how often do you get to turn to people like Andrew Kreisberg, your executive producer, or Greg Berlanti, uh, for help on, on, on some of the information and backstory? Well, we kind of talk to them as often as we can. I mean, whenever, Gre- whenever uh, Andrew's around, uh, particularly doing read-throughs and things like that, you know, we'll take, he t- might take us aside and explain you know, where the character's going and what they're developing for characters. And, and I said that's very, very exciting because I, I, I must have let you a huge secret. When I did the pilot, I had no idea where this character was going. And uh, we, we've kind of, we've since kind of sat down and talked about where he's leading. And it's, it's, it's really exciting. Andrew Kreisberg, writer, executive producer, Justice League, Arrow, The Flash, Supergirl, Legends of Tomorrow. Speaking with Kevin Smith. Excellent right out the gate experience with Flash. So it means that by the time you get to Legends, you guys are ninjas. Like you can yeah, but I think, I think Supergirl's Supergirl's still finding its way a little bit. Like I think like that episodes episodes uh, those first four I think have their ups and downs. Livewire, I saw images of Livewire. We had Livewire so- in episode five, Red Tornado. Um, uh, next week uh, you'll see Gem. Um, I saw an image of Gem in advance. Looks like Gem in in the. Uh, uh, Rock of Ages storyline. Yes. Justice League. We, uh, yeah, we're not afraid to do anything anymore. Like, at least, that, I mean, that's what success has given us, that it's like we, we, we're going to do Gem, Son of Saturn. Uh, non coming up, you know, we're sort of like doing non before he begot, became lobotomized, right. you know. Um, and uh, what else we have? I mean, you know, I'm trying to think of what's been announced and what hasn't You been told announced. us something which we won't share here, but it's good. Yeah, it's not bad, right? Oh, <laughs> and, he, and you know what? To be fair, you didn't even tell us. <laughs> It wasn't yeah. you didn't you didn't, didn't put it into words. I, I did not. A picture a picture's worth a thousand words. <laughs> but friend. what a picture it was. Yeah. Um, so if you're not on the Supergirl train right now, if you're like, Oh, I'm all arrow, I'm all flash, jump on to Supergirl. You're gonna something's, get there. Yeah, something's uh-huh. about to happen. We're gonna be like, No So you and in a good way. Not like, No, this sucks. You're gonna be like, No, this is amazing. So jump on now. Um thanks. Kyler Lee, actress, not another teen movie, Grey's Anatomy, Supergirl. I feel like every episode we're learning a lot more about our characters, about each other. But when that was revealed, who he was, I mean, David, in and of itself, his his reaction was just like he's like a kid in a candy store. Mm-hmm. It's really it's really amazing because I, I, he's so strong and he's just like such such a calm, cool guy. But then he put on the suit for the first time the other night. Um, we had a scene out in the desert. I, I've never seen a grown man make a noise like that. <laughs> like, oh, hey! and Cameron, I was like, whoa, okay, so that does not match the face. But yeah, Martian Manhunter, that definitely, John Jones, it definitely brings a lot of drama to the mix. It gets revealed actually in our next episode that airs, episode seven. Um, he reveals uh, himself to, to Alex, and it's pretty awesome. 
It's so how does that affect the relationship between your characters? It does quite a bit. You know, because up until then, there's all the question of, of who is Hank, you know, how much does he know about, you know, our past and the family, and now I'm kind of learning more that he's very much a part of what happened to my dad. And so, you know, there's, there's tons of mistrust and a lot of questions and not a lot of answers, and he's walking around with his red glowy eyes all the time. It definitely adds a lot of layers to the relationship between them. You, you start to see that he looks at her almost as if she's one of his daughters. David Harewood. When, uh, when were you told? I was told about two weeks into the job. So I, I apologize for my Comic-Con answers. <laughs> I didn't know anything. Episode one. Up until then, I was still unsure. I knew something was changing, but I wasn't absolutely sure what it was. And it was, it was quite uncomfortable. The pilot was quite uncomfortable because I, 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 a lot of what um, Hank said was exposition. Um, this is the DEO, and I'm this, and you're here. And so it was, very, it, wasn't, it was an uncomfortable experience playing um, Hank in the pilot. So I was really pleased, actually, because it... it, it Marshall Manthorne is such a huge character. Uh, it took me on a whole new, different direction. Andrew Kreisberg. So uh, we were on the set of the pilot, and we were talking about what we could, you know, uh, just, as it happens when you're on when you're on the set of the pilot, you start seeing the sets, and you start seeing the actors, and you start thinking about well, what we could do next, and all the different possibilities that there could be. And we were all of us just so in love with David, and um, so happy uh, to have him on the show, and just loved everything he was doing with Hank and Jeff, uh, Jeff Johns, and Greg Greg Berlanti and I were standing there, and um, like just collectively amongst us, it's ah, it's so funny we cast David, you know, because he's got those weird ears, you know, he's got a little bit of alien ears, and uh, and they said, you know, it's funny. I mean, I don't remember which one of us said it, but it was like, oh, if we were ever going to make a a, a a Martian Manhunter show or something, you know, David would have been the perfect Martian man. Hunter, and it was Jeff who said, "Why can't he be?" <laughs> and we looked at each other, and we were like, started like, "Well, wait, wouldn't well, wait a minute." And then we started thinking about everything that was happening in the pilot, and the, the sort of notion that because um, we already had the Hank Henshaw idea, you know, sort of set up that we would be playing this sort of this sort of bad uh, secret that he was that he was that he was holding and then we started thinking about it it's like oh well, wait a minute what if it's a good secret what if the what if it's like the reverse of the flash that uh, you think he's bad and then but he turns out to not only be good but literally be the most good person in the DC universe um, and and then we started thinking about well what all of Hank's you know because originally Hank was going to have a, uh, a different backstory you know like everything he said in the pilot and we said oh actually you know if he survived Mars and came here and his whole goal was to protect Earth and not let Earth suffer the same fate as Mars, well then he's doing exactly what Kara says and what Astra says which is not here, never again and you know he's got it, you know he's had to like sort of like lead this crazy existence pretending to be Hank Henshaw and he doesn't want Supergirl around, she could mess everything up and we're like oh it actually all fits and then we started talking about what the feasibility of it was, first we had to tell David oh by the way (laughs) And, you know, his, his you know, he, he was so funny because uh, Ali and I took him out to lunch and he was like, I- I'm not going to be Shrek, am I? And, um, you know, we've got White Martian episodes and Gem and, and, and it's, it's uh, you know, it's very, it's sort of the secret of Supergirl that within the body of the series of Supergirl, there is 
<laughs> there is a Martian Manhunter series, you know, rolling throughout it, you know, and watching people on, online and actually seeing a lot of people now really start to suspect that that's who he is, um, but in a good way, because I, I, everyone who says, who says I think it's who it is, it's always with like glee or I hope or oh my God, is this really true? It's not like Jesus, he better not be the Martian Manhunter, I'm done. It's sort of one of the great surprises of the show. David Harewood. Kara and Alex almost become his children, and he loves them. And, you know, I don't know if you know much about the character of Marshall Manhunter, but having lost his own children, he's got a lot of pain. There's a lot of pain and a lot of melancholy, which is fantastic to play. Um, his power set is, you know, anything. It transcends like Superman and Supergirls, um, but it has a lot of similarities. So, will he be taking on that mentor role to her and like using her abilities and powers? Could we see some of that? There's a little bit of that, yeah. Remember that he hasn't used half of these powers for many years because he's been reforming the DEO and, and uh, pretending to be somebody else. So I think the revelation is as much, uh, as much a kind of weight off his shoulders than anything. Than any, it's the fact that he can finally be himself. And I think that's also at times very uncomfortable for him because he realizes, you know, Kara's, you know, beautiful, attractive and blonde and gorgeous and I'm this seven foot green Martian. And as much as I want to just be myself, it would terrify people to be confronted with this alien. The wonderful thing about John Jones is that he spends so much time in these other aliases that um, he just becomes them, they become part of him. Hank is as much a part of him as, uh, as any of his pseudonyms, so hopefully down the line we'll see him in different guises. What did you know about Martian Manhunter before? Nothing. Or, okay. But having start, started to read, having done this job, it's made me go back to the comic books and realize that the DC universe is much darker than Marvel. And, uh, and, and it's been really, it's been wonderful to, to journey back. That's been fascinating for me. So when, when they presented me with the comic books and the model, so I kind of, I kind of helped, I kind of was a little bit anxious because I, I just could see hours of prosthetic makeup and just something that I didn't particularly want to do. And, and, but when I started reading him, I was, I was blown away. I thought, wow, how did this guy ever escape my comic book knowledge? So, so I have been reading Marshall Manhunt comics now for the last three months, four months, and they're just awesome, and he's such a wonderful character. And, you know, I really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm away from my family, my family are in England, so I can really, just, I can really affiliate, associate with that sense of loneliness, and, you know, he's isolated. He's very, he's, there's a lot of melancholy there, and I can tap into some of that myself, just from, as I say, being here on my own. John, are you all right? My family and loved ones are long gone. I am the last of my kind. I know the feeling. Now, Mars is dead, and I am alone in the universe. John, we can never replace the family you've lost, but we'd be honored if you could learn to call Earth your home. Lance Reddick, actor, The Wire, Fringe. Jonah Hex, Beware the Batman. Any superhero movies or Star Wars characters that you would love to take a crack at on the big screen? Oh, well, <laughs> if there's an independent Black Panther movie, I'd love to play Chaka. And I'd also love to play uh, the Martian Manhunter. Okay. A, um, oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> okay, so those are the two dreams. All right, yeah. boy, we have a we have a full list of, of things we're gonna make happen. Well, here. I mean, John Wick TV show. I mean, John Stewart would be great too. 
Okay. Yeah, the green You're going to have to fight <laughs> yeah. Tyrese for that one. He's been yeah. on social media all over. Oh, like, doing his, uh, his fan art. Well, I like, well if, I get John, if I can march a man up, he can... He can <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Mike McCone, artist of Justice League United, Justice League International, and Justice League Quarterly. It's the 60th anniversary of the Martian Manhunter this year. You've actually drawn the character fairly consistently in the sense of you've had when you've had a run on a book, he's often popped up in the DC titles. Do you have any affection for the character just as a character, as a reader? Well, I, I do like the character. He seems to be... Um I guess if I likened him to anyone at Marvel, it would be the Vision. Incredibly powerful character who isn't isn't a hothead, isn't a kind of lead character. So he's a little more interesting in that. His take on you know crime fighting or, or justice is a little more detached, which I always find kind of interesting. Especially since I've moved to America, my my own views on on kind of the legal system and, and crime and punishment in in the U.S. is kind of detached because I'm a foreigner here. So I, I guess there are parallels in that sense. Peter David. This is the 60th anniversary of the Martian Manhunter. Do you have any thoughts on the character? I have no thoughts on the character because I didn't know it was the 60th anniversary. Aside from the fact that, oh my God, this character's been around for 60 years. Not bad for someone who you can basically take out by striking a match. <laughs> Excellent. Howard Porter. So, Howard, I mean, like, you've you've obviously been able to, to touch, I mean, and by that I mean draw, some of the biggest heroes in, in comics. Do you have a favorite that you've drawn? I, but when I was doing JLA, it was Martian Manhunter. Yeah. yeah. I loved him. It really was. <laughs> uh, so what, what is it about him? Is it, is it like the costume? Is it just like his, his overall posture, his, his attitude? Like what's the most, what's fun about Martian Manhunter? He's green, uh, right? Yeah, the green. I love. I love the green. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, I lo- I love his alien form with the the longer head and um, and he's basically Superman. He's huge. And yeah. uh, let's see what else do I like about him? Um, oh, I, I really enjoyed his um, morphing effect. It came up mm-hmm. with, with an effect where he would like break apart and and, right. and reform. Right. Oh, cool! I right, I that. forget that he shape shifts. Like I know, that, I mean, I know that he can like pass through things, but I always forget yeah, that yeah. he can shape shift and stuff like yeah. that. Very, very cool. Andrew Kreisberg. Uh, uh, John has always been one of my favorite characters from my childhood, and then uh, you know through the, through the Justice League cartoon, and, and um, you know just that soulfulness and that sadness, and, and and you know the one who is the most frightening looking of all the Justice Leaguers, and yet is the one with the purest heart. David Harewood. It's been a really wonderful journey as an actor, as an actor to play this comic book character. It, it isn't kind of macho, and I want to say the world. It's somebody that's really was, was brought here completely by mistake and has learned to understand humanity and has decided to, to, to help it. And he, he, he's the centre of the Justice League. And I mean, that's just awesome. <laughs> I just had no... And I didn't really know about the Justice League. Obviously, again, because I look at Marvel, you think about the Avengers, but I didn't really know about the Justice League again until I started reading these comics. And it's been it's just been such a wonderful journey. So I'm really excited to, to see where this could go and, and, and to be a part of it. It's, uh, it's just a great character to play. I mean, like, this is as good as playing Macbeth or Hamlet to me. It's, <laughs> this, is a, this is a great character. J.M. DiMatteis. This year marks the 60th anniversary of The Martian Manhunter. You've given us just a brilliant praise for that character, a wealth of information and anecdotes. Uh, is there anything else you would like to say about The Manhunter before we close? No, the only thing is that having this conversation has made me realize again how much I love that character and how much I would love to do another Martian Manhunter story. So I'm like, now you've put Martian Manhunter like forefront in my brain. But I also, again, got to write him... In the animation, in the animation, so that was another opportunity to revisit that character. Um, in fact, we did a couple of episodes of Brave and the Bold, where it was uh, 
the JLI. And we got to play with that same dynamic, which was really a lot of fun. But yeah, I love the character, and anyone from DC's out there listening, I want to write another Martian Manhunter story. Oh, uh, the last issue you did of Justice League, you said your two favorite characters to write in that book were Blue Beetle and Martian Manhunter. Does it still hold true today? Probably. The, the Beetle Booster team and their dynamic, but if I had to pick one, it would be Beetle, because he feels closer to me and who I am, you know? Uh, and, and Martian Manhunter, absolutely. I love all the other characters. They're great, but those are my favorites. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time. Wonderful to talk with you. Thank you very much. And that's how I prevailed in the third campaign of Herodmir. But the fourth? Oh, 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 now that is a real humdinger. The music Black Sheep Alien by Cyril B. Pereira from the album The Revenge of Glory, 2007. The additional music from the album Diabolic, 2012. Salvaludo, courtesy of Wizard Magazine, number 22, 1993. Christopher Priest, courtesy of DigitalPriest.com, 2000. Howard Porter, courtesy of Comics Coast to Coast, number 214, 2000. Grant Morrison, courtesy of Fat Man on Batman, episode 27, Bat Christ, 2013. And Multiversity Panel, SDCC, 2015. Kevin Smith, courtesy of Fat Man on Batman, episode 27, 2013. And Fat Man on Batman, 103, Passion of the Christberg, 2015. Kyle Rayner, courtesy of Green Lantern 87, 1997. Wally West, courtesy of Martian Manhunter number 8, 1999. JLA 86, 2003. JLA Scary Monsters number 3, 2003. And JLA 92, 2004. Eel O'Brien, courtesy of JLA number 92, 2004. And DC 1 Million number 1, 1998. Steve Vance, courtesy of Overstreet's Fan number 21, 1997. Robert Greenberger, courtesy of Millennium Edition, Detective Comics number 225, 2001. Daryl Banks, courtesy of ComicsContinuum.com. John Ostrander, courtesy of Dollar Bin Comics, episode 352, 2015. Mark Wade, courtesy of Fantastic Forum, 2013. Darwin Cook, courtesy of Orbital and Conversation, episode 156, 2015. iFanboy, episode 63, 2008. And Comic Fine Videos, SDCC, 2012. Carl Lumley, courtesy of Sci-Fi Talk, 2012. G&P Interviews, 2015. And The Justice League Interviewed at Comic-Con, 2015. Bruce Tim and Stan Berkowitz, courtesy of Warner Brothers Animation. Phil Morris, courtesy of Sidebar, Comics, Art, and Pop Culture, Episode 71, 2008. A.J. Lieberman, courtesy of Where Monsters Dwell, 2012. Paul Cornell, courtesy of MTV Geek, 2011. CBR TV at CCI, 2011. And Comic Book Roadshow, 163, 2012. Matt Kent, courtesy of Wayne's Comic Podcast, Number 86, 2013. And Previews World, 2013. Jeff Johns and Mike Carlin, courtesy of Warner Brothers Animation. David Harewood, courtesy of K-Site TV, 2015. Widenopolis Videos, 2015. Access Hollywood, 2015. Jim Starlin, courtesy of Sidebar, 2008. Victor Rogers, 2014. And The Gorgeous Geeks, 2010. Rob Williams, courtesy of Word Balloon. Supergirl cast and crew, courtesy of CBS.com. Supergirl pilot, behind the scenes, 2015. Ethan Supergirl cast, 2015. And stars go inside the Department of Extranormal Operations, 2015. Andrew Kreisberg, courtesy of Fat Man on Batman 103. And K-Site TV. Kyler Lee, courtesy of K-Site TV. Lance Reddick, courtesy of IGN Keeping It Real Podcast. Additional audio clips from the recorded programs, Home Box Office. Mantis, 1994. Justice League of America, 1997. Justice League Unlimited, 2001 through 2006. Smallville, 2001 through 2011. The Batman, 2004 through 2008. Robot Chicken, 2005 through 2015. Justice League Heroes, 2006. Justice League Heroes Original Soundtrack, 2006. Justice League The New Frontier, 2008. Batman The Brave and the Bold, 2008 through 2011. Justice League Christ on Two Earths, 2010. Graphic Audio DC Comics, DC Universe, Last Sons, 2010. Young Justice, 2010 through 2012. Justice League Doom, 2012. Injustice Gods Among Us, 2013. Lego Batman the Movie, DC Superheroes Unite, 2013. Lego DC Comics Superheroes, Justice League, Attack of the Legion of Doom, 
2015, Supergirl 2015 through 2016. This is a not-for-profit hobby venture. No original content from this podcast is intended for commercial use. Any copyrighted materials featured in the podcast are believed covered under fair use. No rights infringement is intended. Thank you for having great questions. Because I don't know, it doesn't, just because someone wants to interview me doesn't always mean they have good questions. And you had really good questions. Thank you. I've actually spent the last couple of weeks researching them. I was afraid that I was just going to be vomiting so much stuff at you. It would be getting on your nerves. So I'm glad you enjoyed the, the conversation. It was, it was, it was, it was stimulating, and it made me think about things I hadn't thought about in a long time. But now I'm going to have to go out and write Martian Manhunter story somehow. Well, it's like there's a Martian Manhunter series out there now, so I'm like. Blow a deadline. Blow a deadline. <laughs> I'm gonna keep my fingers crossed. Pleasure to talk to you. Great to he's talk like, with he's you. like the Martian Manhunter fan elite. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is a very big deal. Very big deal for him. I know. You're not. One of the things I love about the Martian Manhunter is he's, he's modest. He's not looking for the limelight, and I can relate to that because I don't want it either. I just want to do my thing and get out of the way. He's the toughest son of a bitch in the movie. <laughs> Same with this guy. Oh God. <laughs> But you thank you. Invisible. Yeah. I, sometimes I've, I've been known to. But, but again, it was great talking with you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for us as well. It's, it's, I'm so glad I started doing this because it's just a great opportunity to have these kind of conversations. Yeah? You know, so. do you, now where is your podcast? Where do you put it up? Uh, this one is the Idle Head of Diablo, which is uh, and uh, it'll. I've seen your website. Oh yeah, cool. This, this is him. Yeah, I'm the guy. Yeah, okay. I'm that guy. So. Uh, I even know who well, I know who you are more than you know what. <laughs> but, well, uh, creepy. Well, what do, you no. <laughs> do you post it on, that, on the website? Yeah, what it is is I, I burn out. I, we, I ran the blog for almost seven years. And I started this podcast with my buddies for the last 20 years. And between my burnout from daily blogging and my enjoyment of doing the podcasting, I kind of abandoned the blog, but then I realized I had to keep going to some degree, especially on the 60th anniversary of the character. So I started doing a little podcast. It's really boring. It's just me droning on. So having an opportunity to talk to you and put that up instead of me on a, 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 you know, about once a month is when it comes up. And you'll be on my next one. You'll be the star of my next one. Uh, it'll be a nice break for all those poor people that want to hear about Marshall Manhunter and don't want to hear me no, talk. Is it the kind of thing where I could, where there's a way if I wanted to embed your podcast in my... Oh, yeah. It's, it's, we, we run through iTunes and we run through Shout Engine. Shout Engine offers an embed. I also run it on the Internet Archive and that offers an embed. So no, there's a lot of different offers. Let me give you I, well, my... I, I follow you on Twitter. I can just tweet your link. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Again, so great talk with you. Wonderful. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it so much. Bye. All right. Now make this save before you.